And I'd like to welcome all of you to this uh, day of introduction or invitation to insight meditation, or an intro to in- insight meditation. Um, for me, it's uh, it is one of the great joys to be able to offer uh, this practice, these teachings, since I have a pretty inexhaustible confidence and faith that of the, the gift that one gives to oneself when you uh, practice, as many people will call it, orienting yourself to the living present, to real time, to having your eyes open, your heart open to uh, what's actually happening here. Uh, I was thumbing through some of my readings at, before I came in today because I kind of like to pick and choose as I go along through the day, and I came across a, po- a poem from the uh, Sufi uh, ecstatic poet Hafez, where he said, what do people who are sad have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It's to stop being so religious like that. (laughs) And I wrote my own second verse. What do people who are anxious and worried have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the imagined future and often go there to do a strange wail and worry. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that. Now it is absolutely 100% necessary in our life that we entertain thoughts of the past and thoughts of the future. That just comes with being human. There have been studies done where if a part of the brain was, was um, affected in such a way where a person could not think of the past and the future, they would have a hard time functioning. So it is one of the ways that we organize ourselves. But what we often forget is the past doesn't actually exist. And the future does not exist either, except as thoughts, as plans, as worries, past as memory, as regrets, as guilt, or whatever it might be. So it is both a natural thing to think of the past and the future, but the problem is not the fact that we think of these things. It's that we give a a kind of reality to the past and go there and then suffer about what has happened before or reality to the future and then suffer about that. So instead in our meditation practice, we know. We know that we are thinking about the past in the present. We know that we are worrying about the future in the present. We know that there is only, only a living present. Everything else is imaginary. So your whole life has come to this moment here. This is the totality of your life. This is not necessarily your life situation, your life story, which is also quite interesting and wonderful and unique, but your life as you experience it is right here. 
So we don't want to, in, in the course of our life, we don't want to miss the only life that we have, which is this unfolding present. And we want to be able to at least distinguish between our ideas of the future and, um, and giving it a, a reality. We want to know that we're thinking about the future, we're planning or re- remembering. So we don't try to get rid of or delete anything in insight meditation practice. We try to wake up to know what is happening in our mind and our body. So if you came here to quiet your mind, anybody come here to quiet your mind? (laughs) That's sometimes the hidden aim. If you came to quiet your mind, you will be very disappointed. If you came to uh, have, have only peace, you'll be disappointed. If you came, however, to be, to be able to learn to relate to your moment-to-moment experience with more kindness, less reactivity, with more wisdom and understanding, to learn to open to whatever it is that presents itself in the present moment, to kind of end your contentiousness with your life, your fighting with your life, then you'll be very happy here. If you came to have a a happiness and a well-being that just depends on you meditating, you won't be very happy, because sometimes you'll have that kind of meditative happiness Sometimes you won't. If, on the other hand, you came to learn to have a well-being, a kind of happiness that doesn't depend on whether your mind is quiet or busy, your body is tight or loose, your heart is happy or sad, if you came for a well-being that doesn't depend on conditions, you'll be happy here. So how many of you came to quiet your mind? Again, once... See, nobody's willing to put their hand up now. (laughs) I say this with all the love in my heart, that if you try to quiet your mind, it usually means you're bothered by it. And if you're bothered by it, it will torment you mercilessly. It'll, It'll annoy you. Again, if you're not bothered by your thoughts, their nature, their natural... The natural nature, as it unfolds, thoughts appear and they disappear. If you're not bothered by them, they quiet by themselves. But there are a few conditions that help us help the mind come to that natural quietness. And I'll say right at the beginning of our practice here that the natural state, and again, I don't want you to believe anything I say, I want you to discover this in real time in your own experience. But the natural state of your mind is quiet. And you'll notice that when you're not looking ahead and you're not looking back and that you're not lost in in thought and you're actually present and you're clearly comprehending that you're present, you know you're here in real time, you'll notice that that moment of real-time attention or awareness or clear comprehension, as we call it, is accompanied with a, with a little sense of peace. Quiet. Noticing is quiet. 
What we notice is not always so quiet, but the noticing itself is quiet. And that's what we want to get in touch with. What we call the, the noticing mind, the, the mind of awareness, which is fundamentally quiet. And we want to be able to get used to that quiet. We want to be able to stay in it, stay in that natural quietness. Again, that quietness may be noticing all the crazy noise of your mind, but that noticing itself is quiet. Does this make sense? So as one of my favorite teachers, a, a teacher named Nisargadot, uh, he, uh, he says, if you, when your mind is not preoccupied and you are aware, you'll see that if your mind is quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, which means if you just stay a little bit more continuously aware and attentive, and you stay in it, you'll discover that your, your own mind is permeated with a light and a love you've never known, but you recognize it at once as your natural state. So once you've been that, once you've tasted that, you'll never be the same person again. But he goes on to say, the unruly mind will break that peace and obliterate that vision. You'll forget. But it's bound to return if the effort is sustained until all bonds are broken and grasping and contentiousness lessen a little bit and you, you find that you're then quite collected and concentrated in the, in the living present. And um, so that's what we offer here. We offer tools of orienting yourself to real time. And we, and I'll just say from the beginning that whenever it is, no matter what it is that you're, is happening in your meditation, if you can notice it, that moment of noticing, you have already arrived at the, the mountaintop. There's no higher mountain to climb than a moment of waking up to where you are. So that's as simple as right now, knowing that you're hearing these words, knowing that you're sitting, knowing that you're in the context of this big, beautiful space. What a blessing to be here, a, a space that was dedicated completely to what we're using it for, not to some kind of converted warehouse or... or even though I, I have led this um, class in this wonderful church in San Francisco, an old, beautiful church, it's not what it was dedicated for. I mean, it, of course it was dedicated toward con- contemplation, but, uh, but this was designed for exactly what we're using it for. So when you're just noticing that, I'll ask you right now, do you need anything? when you're just here and being present. And when you're here just being present, even if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable, if you're not reacting to that and you're just noticing it, is there any suffering in that? Do you want anything when you're being present? So it seems that so many of our desires, things that we long for, are fulfilled 
when we're simply present. And yet, it's called an open secret because everything we're taught from the time we're born is to associate our sense of well-being with what's next, with what I'm becoming, where I'm going, what I want to happen, what I want to get rid of. And so most of what we associate happiness with depends on conditions, conditions being a certain way. And conditioned happiness, happiness that depends on satisfying a hunger or getting rid of something, the Buddha called that the happiness of bondage. Pleasure, we often experience a tremendous amount of pleasure in getting what we want. But that whole process of waiting and hoping, expecting, leaning toward what it is I want to happen, that whole process is we're actually practicing. We're practicing a state of waiting. We're practicing a state of suspended happiness. I can't be happy until. So practice of insight meditation says we don't have to wait to be happy. Happiness, peace is your natural state. You just have to orient yourself to exactly where you are and stop postponing. Stop grasping what you don't have and pushing away what you do have. Open to your life. I'll give you some of the background of how the Buddha came to this realization of this open secret, how he came to a sense of peace and freedom in this very life uh, as we go along during the day. But it does come down to, our whole practice comes down to, what am am I knowing? What am I knowing in this moment? I don't mean historically. What am I experiencing this moment? So notice the effect on your body when you're just experiencing sitting here. Again, you don't even have to change your posture and you can just feel just by putting some attention on your sitting posture, the knowledge that you're here, just from having attention in the same location as your body, there's a natural stilling, a kind of quieting. There's maybe a little bit more relaxing that happens. Your breath becomes a little easier. Now, some of you may be nervous about being present because we're so unused to it. Just notice how there's just a natural easing and a stilling. When our attention is in the same place as our body. And so we can check out where is the past now. Isn't it amazing how our mind can create this thing called past and throw it somewhere behind us? And then we do the same with the future. We kind of throw it somewhere in front of us. This is all made up. There's really just us sitting together. So what we'll do today, what the invitation to insight meditation is inviting you to orient here, to get used to it, 
to slowly in the course of your life stabilize this experience of, of being present, becoming so interested in it, so passionate about being present, because that's the only place that, where you can find life, that your desire to be, to be elsewhere will, will loosen up a little bit. You won't have to spend your whole life waiting for the weekend, waiting for the end of this day, waiting for the bell to ring, waiting for the love of your life or the, the filling of your coffers. You will know that the real medicine, the real happiness that you're looking for is already existing as the very awareness through which you are perceiving right now. I'm wondering, is that relieving to anyone? Or is it... I don't know. When I talk about this, I feel relieved. It reminds me to just be here in this room with you. And I, when, I'm, when I do that, I, I don't want to be anywhere else. There's a, f- a few things that are done every day in monasteries throughout the world, and they have been for the last 2,600 years. Just a reminder that this teaching and practice of insight meditation is not a kind of new age California thing. It's kind of old age, oldie moldy, but tried and true and been literally practiced by millions. And it's been carried through the centuries on a, you could call it a river of, of generosity and compassion that people have been very touched by what they've learned, and then they've just shared heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind for 2,600 years. And for the most part, that's, it's been you know, freely offered, and there's no, you know, it's, just, it's just a gift. Um, and we're here because so many people have practiced before. So many people have, have been... Uh, have been touched by it and then been generous. You know, believe it or not, I don't know if you know this, building was not built on the tuition of people coming to, to um, Spirit Rock for retreats. It was built on people coming to retreats and then feeling so moved by, um, in gratitude that they just offered to both the operating budget of Spirit Rock and to build these buildings. So there's something about the letting ourselves, our hearts get touched, that it leads to this desire to, to be of benefit, to share, to be generous, to, and all the wholesome qualities that, that seem to bring gladness to our heart, bring joy, spring from just the simple act of being present. Because it has with embedded in it intelligence and wisdom and love. So without... Um, so in monasteries... Every day they chant um, uh, a reminder of what we're doing that's a little bit different than what we do in daily life. And we basically, in monasteries, the reminder of that, that river of generosity, it's called Sangha, the, the Sangha of awakening that's carried for 2,600 years. And instead of going to our isolation, our individualistic preoccupations, we go to, in the, in the immediate present, we go to the support that we experience from each other, from this historical stream and from sitting together. So one of the, 
reminders every day is to keep wise company. And so you're doing that today, and hopefully you're encouraged to do that. And of course, it doesn't have to always be company of people who are doing insight meditation, but people who value awakening, value the wholesome qualities that human beings can express instead of its opposite, which we see so prevalently now, the greed and hatred and ignorance, confusion. So they chant in monasteries, instead of going to the, as we are taught in daily life, go to the mall for refuge. Go to your smartphone for refuge. Go to intoxicants for refuge. Go to distraction for refuge. Instead we say, go to the Buddha for refuge. And Buddha just means awake. So the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist, the Buddha was awake. So we go to that wakefulness that lives in us. That's we're reminded to do that. So we're going a little bit against the stream of what, every, what we're taught in terms of how to find relief. And then the second thing, the third thing, so we go to the sangha, community, support, we go to this quality of wakefulness. The last, what's called the third refuge or third jewel, we go to the dharma. Dharma means truth or nature or the way things are. And in the most immediate sense, that's we go to whatever it is that's happening here for our refuge. Just reiterating, we don't go to what we hope will happen or expect or how it happened the last time. We go to how it is. And nature meaning, we, this is a back to nature practice. We go to our, this miraculous experience of having a mind and a body with its senses and perceptions. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body. This is Dharma. To me, when I, ever, I even say that, I always, always feel, wow, how amazing just to be able to have senses. And that's not exactly where we usually go for refuge. We go to distraction, to unconsciousness, to dullness. So what we're going to do today is we're going to try to actualize these three different ways of of being than our usual, our conventional daily life. We're going to go to being aware for refuge, whatever we're aware of, and we're going to the support that we receive from each other. Everybody agree to that? The other thing that when people come together and practice like this, because it's a, it's a kind of unpeeling, of, it's an opening, it's a tenderizing of our experience. We're, we're in a sense letting ourselves relax and be present. So we, it's necessary as we do that to feel as safe as we can, as easy. And in that vein, I, I want to invite everyone here to feel safe. And, I'd, I want, and in that, I also want to, you to feel free to invite every part of yourself here. Spirit Rock really is devoted to just having there be just no... Um, no limit to who is welcome here and what your ethnicity, your, your orientation, your um, 
your race, everything, everyone is welcome here. And so we want to treat ourselves with that same kind of welcoming. And so in order to do that, we agreed to have respect for each other, reverence for life. Traditionally, it's not killing, but I don't think anybody's going to do much killing today. We're really blessed in that regard because not every place is so safe. We agreed to refrain from taking what's not offered, not stealing, having reverence and respect for other people's property and also a commitment to simplicity. Renouncing that kind of hunger in us as a um, to have. So we don't kill, we don't steal. We refrain from, since we're in this context, we refrain from flirting, from acting out our, our sensuality today through trying to get anyone's attention. We give each other the gift of solitude. Traditionally, this is not causing harm with our sexuality. So here, it's just celibate and non-flirting. Agreeing just to leave each other alone. And so that we can be alone together and feel the intimacy of that quiet. We agree to keep noble silence. To give each other the gift of solitude. Not having to come from our personality today. To just be able to have our senses be open and simple and just come into contact with life. So agree to noble silence. And in daily life, it's just not causing harm with our speech, which is just, we cause enormous harm with our speech. So we agree to put that aside here. And finally, we agree not to take any intoxicants that tend to lead to carelessness and heedlessness, drugs, alcohol, and smartphones. Put down your smartphone. Turn it off for the day. Everybody agree to that? Look around and tell everyone that you agree. Okay. Thank you. We're, we're good to go then. Okay, so please feel free to refresh your posture. And... And we will begin our practice with highlighting what the Buddha called the first foundation of mindfulness. And we will, as we go through the day, go through all the, the essential foundations of mindfulness. Because the whole practice of insight meditation was a, an expression of one particular teaching that the Buddha offered called the Satipatthana Sutta, or the Sutta on the four foundations of mindfulness. First foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body. And that will be our primary anchor throughout the the day. But we will also include mindfulness of feeling, which is a little different than emotions. We will have mindfulness of emotions and thoughts and images. And then mindfulness of the uh, uh, laws of nature as we realize them going along so that we become our own authorities about these teachings rather than uh, adopt any beliefs. We don't adopt beliefs in this teaching. We, we see for ourselves. That's... 
there's still some space up here for any of you who want to be up where the vibes are more intense. Just kidding. <laughs> so when the Buddha talked to the monks, he said, there's one thing, O oh monks, if developed and cultivated, leads to a strong sense of urgency, to great benefit, to great security from bondage, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a pleasant dwelling in this very life, to the realization of the fruit of knowledge and liberation. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. So how do we orient to our body? First, I would recommend that those sitting on a chair, that, um, that if you can have your back free, that would be great. If, if that feels too hard to, to be with, uh, just try to have at least a, a gentle, upright posture that's relaxed, that's not strained. And for everyone to gently shift from side to side or front to back until you find a center point where sitting upright is most effortless. Sense how your scapulas have a little weight in the back, how your torso is resting easily on your hips, shoulders relaxed, neck resting easily on your shoulders, head resting easily on your neck. So you might feel as though there's a a plumb line from the top of your head down through your perineum area. And let your eyes close softly and feel the relaxed touch of your eyes. And slowly bring your attention down to where your rear end touches the cushion or the chair. And just absorb those sensations until you no longer feel rear end on chair. You just feel sensation, aliveness. And then the same with the touch of your hands, whatever they're touching, until you just feel sensation. Touch of your lips. And the form or the shape of your body until you feel it, feel it or experience it as a field of sensations. And feel its gentle stillness. No strain, no tension.
And then from the inside, feeling, experiencing, and noticing the sensations that are felt with each breath that your body makes. Just noticing with a quality of receptivity how your body breathes naturally. No need to effort to breathe. You'll notice that your body breathes some short breaths, some long breaths, some rough, some smooth, some deep, some shallow. And as much as possible, we try to let our body breathe just the way it does. And we accompany the breath with our kind and interested attention. to the feeling of each in-breath and each out-breath as it occurs. Now sometimes just from drawing attention to the breath it may alter a little bit, but as much as possible let the breath breathe itself. And simply feel and ride the waves of the breath, waves of sensation, breath by breath. Never losing contact with this physical presence. Some of you may receive or feel the breath as your belly or chest rises and falls. Some of you will experience the breath most prominently as the air enters and leaves your nostrils. And first you just want to experiment with where you feel the breath most clearly, how it is that you know that you are breathing. Just this breath, just this moment.
Some people find it helpful to accompany the experience of the breath with a soft mental label of in with the in-breath, out with the out-breath, if you're noticing most prominently at the nostrils, or rising and falling if you're noticing at the chest or belly, or perhaps even expanding and contracting if you're feeling the gentle throbbing of your whole body with each breath. This mental labeling is completely optional, but can sometimes help to keep you connected to this experience of the body and its breath. Like a transparent whisper in the mind, in, out. It is universal that after just a few breaths, your attention will drift into fantasy, thoughts will arise, and you'll become absorbed in them, lost in thought. This is so natural, and so there's no need to judge this. This is just conditioned. But as soon as you realize that your attention has drifted from your body and breath into the imagined world of your thoughts, the moment you realize it, you can recognize that as a moment of waking up, of being aware, an opportunity to relax and to very gently reconnect again with your body. as gentle as putting a puppy back on paper when you're trying to train it. We're slowly gathering our attention, learning how to sustain our attention to the living present. It's something that happens very gradually, 
So please be gentle without judgment and reconnect with just this breath, just this moment. Try to be intimate with this experience of each breath, sticking to it, sinking into it, spreading out all around it, not missing any part of the in-breath and the out-breath, one half-breath at a time. Breathing with your body.
three more minutes. Please begin again. Every moment is a new beginning. Find your body, find your breath. Total simplicity.
But like many of you, this was my first sitting in this room. Um, it was interesting. <laughs> really glad I was here, glad I'm here, glad I'm here with you. And a few things that I thought of, meditation teachers do think. <laughs> uh, the first thing uh, I thought of is that um, insight at the beginning of our practice, because this is called insight meditation, that insight is often what could be judged as bad news. You realize that your body is either restless, agitated, tight, mind is tired, and we so, so some of the first insights are the, the recognition of the effect of our life uh, on our mind and body. And uh, so sometimes it's a little unpleasant, a little bit of a bumpy landing. And this is not the only reason, but the, the practice is we start with this simple tool of connecting our attention with our body in the form of feeling our body and feeling our body breathing. And we use this as a way of gathering and sustaining to create the conditions for calm, for focus, for actually the conditions to be able to notice either whether your body is agitated or tired, to notice the whole range of what you will likely experience. And so as we go through the day, just so that you don't think it's just a mindfulness of breathing exercise, that's just the initial tool that we use. And that creates the conditions to see more clearly, but then we start to, as we see more clearly, we start to include other sensations that we feel that are stronger than the breath. We include our moods and our emotions. We include the flavor of the sensations and the feelings. We notice when something's pleasant. We notice when it's unpleasant. We notice when it's neutral. We notice thoughts. We notice images. We notice sounds. And every single one of those experiences is meant to be part of the, what we call the field of awareness, the field of meditation. So n- most of what we will experience is not the breath. Breath is just our initial tool and it's our primary anchor. But if other experiences become louder or stronger than the breath, that's not a distraction. That's just the next thing to notice. I call it equal opportunity mindfulness. Everything is an equal opportunity to train our attention to be present, to clearly comprehend what's happening. That's mindfulness. It means to be lucidly aware of what it is that's happening at one of the different doors of perception, one of the different senses. That's it. And then perhaps in that process you'll see that our whole life, as we actually live it, is just six experiences. It's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, and the noticing of all of those. The way we think of our life, the the narrative of our life, is not our life. That's a second-hand version. Our life is actually what you're experiencing here, and it's basically very simple. Six experiences. And it turns out that the more in touch we are with those six experiences as we're experiencing them, not just with with a kind of wide view with a kind of openness 
we tend to in more we tend to know how to more intelligently navigate our lives we learn how to trust that and we see how much our our narrative of our life complicates the simple reality of what we're actually experiencing and so we see the difference between our immediate life and the story of our life just a little passage from James J. Audubon in that vein. He says, if, you, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guide book says, believe the bird. <laughs> so I look at each of you and, and I think of Thich Nhat Hanh where he says, you who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living, in other words, thinking you're not enough or something has to be different. You who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home and reclaim your heritage. Just feel yourself. Each person here is so enough as you are. Not as an idea, but as a direct experience if you let yourself. So we'll hopefully get used to that a little bit. But in the, also in that vein, this is before we give the next formal instruction, but in that vein of, of insight at the beginning being sometimes uh, things that are a little hard to be with, sometimes called bad news, one of the, um, the messages we get every day is um, keep busy. As Amy Cross Rosenthal, an editorialist, put it, uh, answered every question, how are you? Busy. How was your week? Busy. What have you been doing? How, how are things? Good. Busy. You name the question, busy's the answer, she says. She says, I know we're terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not, it's, it's our knee-jerk response. She says, have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? I've got... T- <laughs> Ten caves to draw in. Can I meet you by the fire next week? (laughs) Her view is that it's... um, She attributes this to the advent of coffee bars. (laughs) And coffee's luscious byproduct, productivity, the joy of doing, of crossing off. She says, as kids, our stock answer to every question, what'd you do at school today? What'd you learn? Nothing. (laughs) She says, I'm starting to think that, that the word nothing is being wasted on the young. And we need to reintroduce it into our grown-up vernacular. I say it a few times, and I feel myself becoming quiet, decaffeinated, meditative. I see a bunch of ducks gliding on a still pond. You know, how did we get so far away from it? It's nothing. So, of course, we're not doing nothing here, but we are, we are, um, we are getting in touch with that, that the joy of not being defined by the past and the future for a little bit, and just feeling ourselves as the richest person on earth, not dependent on conditions. So that takes a little bit of a getting used to, as I said before. And part of how we get used to our orientation to real time is if we just sat all day, just sat, we would, feel, we would just start to... We would, it would look like the wailing wall in Jerusalem in here. We'd be nodding all day because we would have some tranquility, but we wouldn't have enough vital energy. 
So what we do it so that we can both have vital energy and have tranquility is we both do sitting meditation, formal meditation, and we do walking meditation. An absolute equal partner to the sitting is walking. The Buddha actually recommended that we practice, in general, mindfulness in four postures, sitting, standing, lying down, and moving to and fro. But our formal practice here will just be sitting and moving to and fro. Our informal practice will be in all those different postures that the Buddha talked about. And the formal walking practice, which is uh, many people sometimes mistake for a break or as a less, as a kind of second class practice, is actually the, the part of practice where I had the most insight come, the most understanding, and actually created, I, I felt like I had the most sense of meditative presence in walking. And at first, though, I thought it would look strange because, you know, the encouragement is you slow down a little bit. Again, you don't turn slow into a religion. You just slow down a little bit so you notice the steps. But in slowing down, it, you know, and I'd see a whole group of people slow, it looked like the, the land of the living dead or something. And it didn't make sense that this is actually a time to wake up. But it is. And it's a time to have that same we'll call it Buddha nature, that wake, awake nature. And the only difference between the awake nature that's sitting and the awake nature that's walking is instead of attending to the flow of the breath as we do in sitting, and the flow of experience other than the breath sitting, we use as our primary anchor the feeling of our legs moving and the contact of our steps on the ground. But it's the same meditative presence. So I'm going to stand up right now and just bec- even in the process of standing, I didn't necessarily lose that meditative presence. I carried it from one position to another. So it's not just sitting that we meditate. I can s- still have the same meditative presence. So with the walking practice, we take a space about the, the width of this, you know, other than that table there, but between you and you, and we instead of taking a walk like we usually do, where we're, our mind, our neck is often a little forward, we're kind of aiming at a destination, uh, lost in thought, instead we walk to and fro, back and forth. And the point of that is, of course, to, for us to each recognize that we're not going anywhere. But the whole point is to arrive at the step you're taking. So, same meditative presence is as though I have not gotten off my cushion. I'm aware. My eyes are open, so I maybe have a little bit more of a panoramic sense of where I am. But I have a, a kind of inner steadiness and stillness, just like I do when I sit. And instead of attending to my breath, I let the breath go as it does 99% of the time anyway. Let the body breathe. And instead, I pay attention to the movement of my legs. And I try to keep my attention very intimate with that experience of a step. Walking at a pace that I can actually feel it. So for one person, that may mean just a little slower than your natural pace. Others, it might be very slow. You'll have to find your own pace. I want to say that again. You will have to find your own pace. Don't, uh, even though you may imitate other people, 
You know, I, I used to in my practice, mostly what happened when I tried to imitate other people, especially the slow ones, I would either fall over or I'd get tight or I'd get really restless. So I, it's important that you find your own pace. But a little slower than normal because if you slow down a little bit, you'll notice more. If you notice more, it'll become more interesting. And if it becomes more interesting, you'll get a little more energy from it. So we want to walk at a pace that we can stay relaxed, balanced. If you go too slowly, you'll lose your balance. Uh, relaxed, you may get, if you go too slowly, you may get tense. If you go too fast, you might get tense. So relaxed, balanced, interested, and of course mindful. We want us to be able to stay mindful, undistracted. So I walk to the end of my pathway, feeling the steps. When I get to the end, I turn around know that I've turned around, and then I begin again. And I want to, in feeling the steps, I want to tune into the, the nature of, because this is a back-to-nature practice, I want to feel nature as it expresses itself in my body, and the hardness and the heaviness I may feel is the, um, that's the earth element. I may feel a sense of cohesion or moisture, that's the water element. I may feel cool or warm, the temperature. That's the fire element. I may feel vibration, or I may feel wind, or I may feel um, kind of pulsing. That's the air element. And that's what we actually experience. You don't have to get into all those words, but you want to feel the underlying experience. Because when I have my... F- I'm standing here and I'm, I'm feeling my feet on the floor. I don't actually feel feet on floor, and neither do you right now. What you feel is sensation. So we try to move from our concepts of things to that more direct experience. Does this make sense? So right now it's a little tingling, a little hardness, a little coolness. And if I'm feeling that, that means my mind is in the same location as my body. And that itself, whether I'm standing, sitting, or moving, if my mind and body together, I'm creating the conditions for... Uh, what we call unification of mind, a calm abiding, a sense of focus. So it really ultimately doesn't so matter, much matter what you're focusing on as long as you don't let your mind leave your body. So just for the sake of experimentation or just for your own experience, just we won't do a step together here because there's not enough room, but please stand up and just feel the How many of you were mindful of the process of standing? <laughs> the process of getting to the standing. We want to include that too, so that there, in some ways it's, it's like keeping the kettle on the stove to boil water. You, do, you want to have a continuity of noticing, like everything, even the turning door handles, opening and closing doors, even when you're in the restroom, you want to have that same kind of meditative presence. So now that you're standing, you can feel your whole body standing, what that's like. And then gently bring your attention to your, the contact of your feet on the floor. And then let your... Just kind of stay with that standing posture. And whenever you're tired during the day, while we're sitting, feel free. If you find that you have tranquility but not much energy, feel free to mindfully stand up in the hall here. And just ex- that little extra energy to hold your body up will help balance your 
tranquility so that you're not sleeping. So letting the concept of foot and floor fall away and just feeling sensation. Until it just comes alive in your mind. And then maybe turn your body to the left. Just feel that whole experience of turning your body and a change of sensations. And then turning your body the other way, back to straight or the, either way, however you can feel it. So it really is that simple, just knowing what your body is doing as you're walking and feeling that point of contact. And in the same way as in the sitting, when you, your attention drifts into fantasy, which it will, it has a lot more practice doing that than, than being present. When you notice that you're, that you're living in kind of virtual reality, that, if you notice it, that means you're already back here. That means you're aware again. And now that you're aware, just in behalf of staying aware, we place our attention back in our body and feel our steps. So it's really the same thing sitting, walking, or anything else you're doing. When you space out, just come back to your body. Once you notice that you're, you're present, that you've awakened, you just let your body, your mind sink into your body and get used to it. Any questions about the walking? To and fro, we have lots of open space out here for walking. Eyes slightly ahead, not really look. You don't need to look at your feet. You just feel them, but you look ahead enough to know where you're going. And uh, it's generally done with the eyes open, but occasionally you can take a few steps with your eyes closed as long as you don't plow into someone. And try to enjoy the experience of, of walking, which is a kind of falling, but it's, a, it's very unique. Once I started it, I... I realized I had never really paid attention to it before. And it's one of those practices that you'll find here that's very portable to your daily life. You'll be walking down a hall or down the street and you'll just find yourself inhabiting your body for once instead of toppling forward into the next thing you're doing. So it's a great opportunity to, uh, to have something that you can also carry with you wherever you go. Any other questions? Any Okay, we have now about, um, we'll say, 20 minutes for walking with a five-minute, uh, you'll, you'll hear a gong of about seven minutes before the, the next sitting. So 20 minutes of walking, you'll hear a gong, and about 27 minutes we'll come back and we'll sit again. So that means we'll, we'll sit somewhere around 10.30, but... Uh, 22 minutes, 23 minutes for walking, seven-minute transition. So even this transition, please be mindful. Just walk to and fro.
in case uh, anyone needs to check in about your practice, I'm going to, for the first few minutes, I'm going to make myself available here, uh, sitting up front. So, shoes probably. You, you know, if you can find barefoot space, that's okay.
As everyone is settling in, I would just like to um, remind you of the uh, agreement to uh, refrain from speaking to one another, uh, to give each person here the, the gift, it's an act of generosity, the gift of solitude, where it's very rare in our life where we're able to just meet our life simply, directly, without any reference to our roles, our past, or our future, where we can actually face ourselves as we are. And each time that we engage with somebody, we're, we're back into our different roles. And so it, it, this is an opportunity for you to step out of the role of partner, of friend, of spouse, of all those things that we usually experience our life through the lens of. And so to see if you can give each person that opportunity. So I, we generally tell people who know each other on a retreat to pretend as though you don't. <laughs> and um, just, for this, just for this purpose, it's part of the retreat culture that, that is, uh, to me, the most generous thing that you can offer is that gift of solitude and, and uh, noble silence. Now, for those of you who may not know, have known that this was a day where we practice in silence, uh, during the lunch meet, during the lunch time, there. Uh, I highly recommend that you don't. But if you want to speak to whoever you may have come with, uh, but try not to do it in any location where you would impact anyone else's um, solitude. So we generally want to create that kind of field of quiet, because as soon as other people see you talking. Then they feel like talking, and it, pretty soon we're back into our, our, our usual culture, which is a lot of talking, not a lot of listening, not a lot of, of um, simple aware presence. So this is a, a, a rare thing, and so try to take advantage of it for the day, if you can. And again, none of this is uh, prohibited, it's just really highly recommended. So on your mark, <laughs> so often during retreats, during formal practice periods, I will, in the middle of a sitting, I will say, stop meditating, just be mindful, or stop being a meditator. There's a tendency when we, when we sit down to meditate that we're going to be busy meditating, and busy being a meditator, and it takes on a whole identity. And, and both meditating and being a meditator add a little layer of tension that's not necessary. This capacity of mindful attention, continual mindful attention, is very, is very natural. So it takes very little effort for you to be aware right now. In fact, if I told you to stop being aware, what happens? See how natural it is. And you didn't have to muscle up to do that. It's your natural state. It's very untrained, not very well developed, but it is natural to you. So part of settling into each sitting period is to feel the naturalness of just the fact that you are aware. And I highly recommend that you uh, 
for these times of the sitting to put down your pens and pads and for this time that you that you don't um, you don't think about using this for any other time this is not a training to be able to go and I'm not singling anybody out training to go out and teach this or make it part of your credential this is just about you resolving your own experience of your life and then of course if that has an effect to other people in your life great but for now, we want to. The only way we really learn this is to is to by experiencing it directly. So let your eyes close softly. Put down all the pads and the papers to the floor. Brief. Be free of your identities even the identity of man or woman. Just experience yourself as a field of awareness and sensations. You're back upright yet relaxed. Ideally, three points of contact. If it's the chair, the feet touching the floor, your rear end touching the cushion, it's cross-legged, your knees touching, your rear end touching, a stable, dignified posture that's upright yet relaxed, that somehow expresses your, your willingness, and interest in aware presence, the combination of being embodied and aware. And just experience that for a moment. And just by turning inward and dropping down into your body, you may notice without even trying that there's a, a stilling, a quieting. So you want to feel that quietness of body That's stilling. And then once again, allow yourself to be sensitive to the gentle movements or sensations that are created by each breath. Just noticing how your body breathes. how it breathes itself. And we just connect with the beginning through the duration of the in-breath, which means just stay with it through the duration, duration of the out-breath. And as we settle in a little more, we start to notice that there's often a space between the breaths, after the out-breath and before the next in-breath. It's often between, in this space between the breaths that we drift off into imaginary worlds. 
So it can be helpful to sustain our awareness even in the space between the breaths, if there is one, by just feeling our whole body and just noticing that space and then being available to the next in-breath that comes and settling back into a state of total receptivity. Be like an open sky that's inviting of anything. In this case, we invite the in-breath, the out-breath, breath by breath. This time we also invite sounds if they become stronger than the breath. We just allow ourselves to notice that hearing is occurring. We just notice the way sound arises is known and it fades away. We make no effort to hear. We let the listening or hearing happen by itself. And when the sound fades away in that openness, And in behalf of staying anchored to the living present, we connect again with our body and breath. We also invite other physical sensations that may become stronger than the breath. If any sensation becomes stronger, we let the breath recede to the background and we let our attention completely rest in the foreground of that predominant sensation. Could be aching, could be burning, stabbing, itching, tingling, searing, squeezing, cool, warm, any number of sensations. We feel them. We feel their quality as they fill our awareness. And we notice what happens to the sensations when they're felt. Do they get stronger? Do they fade away? Do they morph into other sensations? We notice the flow of sensation until it fades, no longer compelling. And in order to stay anchored to the living, present, we connect again with our breath. So graciously receiving the breath, sounds, and other sensations when they become stronger than the breath. In the meantime, just this moment, just this breath, or whatever is predominant. Soft mind, yet alert. Gentle attention, yet precise. 
just this moment. Feel free to use the soft mental label with sounds and other sensations as well. Just a transparent whisper in the mind, hearing, hearing. Or the sensations, aching, aching, burning, burning. Just an open-handed acknowledgement of what is filling your awareness in this moment. Just this moment.
Let your body be soft and still. Soft eyes, aware with our whole being, not just from the neck up, our whole body aware of this breath, sounds, other sensations. We remain undistracted as long as it lasts, knowing that we will become lost in thought for short or long periods. And while we're lost in thought, there is nothing that can be done until mindfulness shines through again. We become aware that we have drifted. At that moment, we should celebrate. Be aware of being aware. Relax. And in behalf of staying anchored to the living present, we connect again with our body and our breath. Whatever calls us here. Just this moment. so natural for the attention to drift into fantasy, so no need to judge. It's, it's not personal. It's, it's conditioned.
If there's any strain or tension, you want to open to that, to notice it. Or if you're falling into a dull stupor, you want to notice that sinking mind. And once you've acknowledged it, the state of your mind, then it's, you're free to very mindfully refresh yourself, begin again. Every moment is a new beginning. You can always begin again. Free of the past, free of the future, free. Open to and welcoming life as it unfolds. This is all there is. Don't miss it.
three more minutes. When you hear the sound of the bell, simply be aware of hearing. And as the sound fades and you're ready to open your eyes, be aware of the opening of your eyes, experience of seeing, and then being aware of any other movements that you make so that nothing is left out of your meditation, your awareness. Great uh, pleasure for me to sit with you so far. Uh, I am very curious. This is a time where maybe I can find out what you're noticing so far. If you have any questions, 
comments, descriptions about the instructions or anything else you're noticing, sitting, walking, things in general, adapting to this retreat culture. Uh, This is an opportunity where I can probably be most helpful and it's likely that whatever comment or question that you might have will be of some benefit to someone else in the room, so please don't be bashful. Any, how are you doing so far? Please, it's right up here. Hang on, he's, wait. Um, my comments on the walking, I found it very relaxing, I mean, really relaxing. It was Shouldn't be relaxing. Just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> just no, kidding. it was, though, because uh, I was just walking. I wasn't thinking. Just walking, not but thinking. But also, I found that there, there were different ways of walking for me. You know, I would do heel to toe and toe to heel, and then how slow or how fast. And um, I had to really be careful because there were times I would lose my balance in just walking. And, um, and I found that posture was important. That posture is important. Great. Those are all great insights. And uh, the, as you may remember from when I offered the instructions, there are basically four things that you want to pay attention to. You want to be relaxed, which you described, be in balance. And so if sometimes balance we lose if we try to walk too slowly when our mind isn't settled. So relaxed, balanced, attentive, which you, sounds like you were, and interested, and sounds like you were interested. So all the four qualities were, were shining on your walking experience. And, and I think it, it is a, especially when we're just learning to do it, even though we're not learning to walk, we're learning to walk mindfully and to slow down a little bit. Uh, it's a creative process and, and it's completely, you're free to experiment with pace, with, with where you put your attention. Mostly at first you just want to feel the steps and know that you're feeling them so that your, mind, your attention's the same location as your body. And then you'll discover all kinds of things. But thank you. Please. Wait till the so please before you speak, wait till the mic gets to you. I I, th- I think one of the things that's always a little uh, tense for me is when we're invited to listen to a sound and there's no sound and it's just silent. When you're right. invited to listen to a sound right, and to there's... concentrate on you know concentrate okay now open your ears to the sound and. Oftentimes there's, there's just nothing in them. Yeah, sometimes there's just doesn't seem to be any sound, but we often call that the sound of silence. Right. And that um, when there's no sound. And you may, if you, if you come a little closer to that experience, you may notice that it's, um, it may have more sound than we sense initially. But when I invited everyone to be aware of sound, it was only if it calls your attention. Only, at least in this in terms of the insight meditation instructions, when a sound becomes loud enough, prominent enough to call your attention from the primary anchor, which is the breath, to be gracious with it. Notice that there's hearing. But sometimes your attention may be drawn to naturally to the sound of silence. And that will just, it will pull you. Something about that silence and something about the sound of it will pull you away from the primary anchor. And that's, Totally fine. But it's a great observation. 
keep noticing that sound, that soundless sound. Over here first, and I'll come back to you. Wait till the wait till the the microphone gets to you. What about just the opposite of multiple sounds, and you're drawing, getting drawn in two yeah, different when, directions? What, what happens when multiple sounds are calling your attention? Then the truth is, we can only notice one sound at a time. So you can let your attention move to different sounds, and that's totally fine. If you're noticing them, that's mindfulness. And sometimes, if it feels like a cacophony of sounds all happening all at once. You can kind of let your lens be wide and just notice, oh, cacophony. Just, just kind of put a ribbon around the whole thing and you don't have to tease out each individual sound. That's fine. So just noise, <laughs> whatever it is. That's totally fine. Please, right in the middle here. Oh, sorry. Um, so... My mind ends up wandering a lot during the yeah, silent probably meditation you're, or the sitting meditation. You're one of the few people who has a wandering <laughs> mind. <laughs> um, but what ends up happening is that they're not even full thoughts. They're like half thoughts. Where half right thoughts. now I can't even, I probably can't even remember or articulate what those thoughts are. And so there's tension between like following through with the thought during the meditation or just coming back to my breath and, and in a way ignoring the thought. And I don't know what is sort of the correct, or if there is a, you know. The How do we work with the, the different thoughts? They, it will. This will be part of this afternoon's instruction, but a little sneak preview. Is uh, what we're mostly interested in the realm of any experience that's happening is not so much the content of it, especially with thoughts or feelings, but the process of it. So you noticed half thoughts, mm-hmm. and then. What happened to those half-thoughts when you noticed them? I would try to actually just breathe, and when I, when I started to recognize my breath, I'd forget the thought. The okay, thought so silence. the thought just kind of went away, and yeah. you ended up back on the breath. Right. Okay, so that's perfectly fine. Okay. So when you notice thoughts, some thoughts will be like half-thoughts that just instantaneously vanish. Some will, it will be quite clear that there's a kind of narrative or a particular kind of thought, like planning or remembering. Other thoughts will be, you won't catch them until you've had a long stream. Mm-hmm. Uh, at whatever point you become aware of thinking, there's nothing to do about them. There's nothing to undo about them. You just need to know that the thinking mind was thinking in that moment. And once it's gone, basically, which it usually is once, you, once there's awareness, once that light shines on that, that mist of, of thought, then you gently reconnect with the breath. In your case, they were gone and then you were back with the breath before you knew it and that's fine. Yeah, my, my worker brain wants to like pick up my notebook <laughs> right when those thought, like all of those half thoughts come and all write those... it down as if they're like so meaningful that I need to explore You actually felt the impulse to write them down? Yeah, <laughs> but then I uh-huh. don't. I so they had, so they had a particular meaning for you in your, in your life. Yeah. So what would, could you give me the general theme Work stuff. What's that? Work stuff. Okay. So that would be in that optional use of mental labeling. You just notice work thoughts. And again, usually if they are, if they are truly meaningful, they'll, they will be available to you, the, whatever the meaning. If not, they're not worth mm-hmm. following. And meditatively, no thought is actually worth um, getting engaged in the content of it. Here we're mostly interested in to see... 
wow, the thinking mind thinking. And how those thoughts, isn't it interesting how they just come unbidden? Mm -hmm. They just pop into the mind. So that's more what we're interested in. And of course you will have some kind of insights that come about work and this and that. And if it's if you start fighting with whether or not you're going to remember, then a word or two down. But in general, just let, let it go. go. I love that you notice the impulse to pick up the book. That's another thing to notice. That's part of the mindfulness too. Please. Thank you. I have two questions. One is a second sitting. I found myself having a general irritation that was growing. It was unpleasant. Um, physical or mental? Physical, but mental was right behind it and getting stronger, the mental irritation. Um, that's what to do with it. when you're sitting and you find yourself getting irritated physically or, or mentally and, and you get kind of stuck. That's one question. The other question is the walking meditation I felt was very focused for me. I was doing loving kindness um, mantras as I was walking. And another meditation I know that is I started doing guided meditation and they say during guided meditation they're 95% focused but when they're sitting they're 5% focused. And the second question is if it's more effective to walk or do guided meditation, should we do those? I think we, I think we have to go back to the first one. Maybe feeling a little flooded here. So the first one you talked about, I, I want to hear all of them, but the first one you talked about um, starting to feel irritated. And so what, did you, what was the first kind of irritation you noticed? How did you notice it? Physical ones are more memorable. Okay, so where did you feel that neck. physical... Neck. Or, and the neck. Neck, you felt... And what was the quality of that sensation that you felt in your neck? Because the, the irritation is usually the reaction to the initial feeling. Discomfort. Discomfort. Yeah. Was it squeezing? Was it tense? Tension? Tension. Yeah. Tension. Okay. Yeah. So ideally, we want to, because inevitably we will have physical sensations that are, that are uncomfortable. If your definition of birth is the leading cause of uncomfortable sensations just comes with the territory. So, we, so our happiness cannot be dependent on the absence of those because they show up in everybody's life. So ideally, when that tension arises, we want to be able to accommodate it and not compound it through our, our, tens, our tensing around it, our not liking it, our tr- trying to strategize on how to get away from it. We first and foremost try to accommodate it. So you, it's like giving it a little space. Can I make space for this tension? And notice, oh, this is what tension feels like. And you can even use that little mental image. Tense, tense, aching, aching, stabbing, burning, whatever it might be. And again, we don't do that in order for it to go away. We do it in order to establish that quality of openness. That's what we're training here. We're not training uh, to smooth anything out or to end anything or to have more of some. We're training to be able to accommodate our life without suffering. The pain may be inevitable, but the suffering depends on how you react to it. So we want to notice that to the extent we can. But in your case, you beautifully described that not only did you feel that, but you also started to get irritated with that experience. Tense about and being tense. Other subjects came up that were irritating to me and came into the mind. Were, so then you started to have a little bit of what we call papancha, proliferation about... And often that's just the second-hand version of this kind of underlying tension and reactivity. So we want to make enough space to even notice that we're getting irritated and notice what the irritated mind is like. And then the next part of that was to notice that it's life, you know, some issue from life is presenting itself. All of that is 
just part of what you notice. You don't get involved in the content, but you notice that's what's happening. And if, if in opening to both the sensation, the reactivity, the contentiousness that you may feel in your mind, whatever the issues from daily life that are presenting themselves, if in that process you notice that you're getting more and more and it's compounding tension and you've, you've done your best to meet that with equanimity, then it's, uh, at that point it's actually useful to uh, take your attention to some place in your body that's not tense, to shift your attention to something that you can accommodate more easily, to kind of soothe your, your attitude to soothe your reactivity, so to, to remind your mind that, oh, not everything is tense. That actually 90% of my body is pretty okay. So that our mind loves to know that. Otherwise, we tend to think of that tension as a monolith that's going to take over the world <laughs> when it's really just localized. So at that time, you move away and then come back and visit the area that was tense. And often the tension has eased because the reactivity has eased. So that's what we're really working with, is how to meet our experience without reactivity. But the way we get there, so to speak, is by noticing all the ways that we're reacting to things. So the second part of your question? Um, sitting meditation, not very effective. Walking, more effective. And, and, more uh, effective, meaning? Um, okay, let's see. Oh, when I walk, I can do uh, loving-kindness mantras, and I feel like it... I'm a memory. I have a memory. I have a felt. I feel like there's some lasting memory with it. And and uh, another meditator I know said they had five percent focus sitting, but ninety five percent. Wait, it. what is the five percent? Ninety five. Somebody said that to you, or your own? Oh, my my experience sitting is is not much focus on the breath. It's it's wandering a lot. And that they were advocating that... Oh, this is somebody else yes. said something to you. Guided meditations have the more focus for them. And I'm wondering if for yeah, beginners, but, guided meditations... Are yeah, mindful... Guided meditation is a wonderful thing as a starter. But it's also... It's not something you want to be dependent on. You want to be able to, to practice wherever you are, whatever you're doing. So you don't want to be dependent on somebody's voice in your mind. You want to rely on just this incredible capacity you have to be aware. It's closer than your breath. That's what you want to depend on, not a voice. You want to be, depend on that experience of being aware. Now, of course, when you start without any kind of support, you're going to, because our minds are untrained, you're going to space out much of the time. But we really want to exploit those moments when you are aware and try to get used to that and enjoy that with no judgment about the, the 95% that you miss. But really just try to sense what that's like when, on those 5% and not make any kind of evaluation about how it's going, except maybe over 10 or 20 years, as the Dalai... As the Dalai. <laughs> so in the walking, just for... If you haven't experimented with just having your mind connected to your body, just really simple, uh, you can do it with a little accompaniment of loving-kindness, but let 95% of your sensitivity be on the feeling of it. 5% this accompaniment of a quality of attention, of kindness. That's if you want to understand and experience walking meditation as it's being offered. If, if you want to, you could practice loving-kindness the whole time, but you wouldn't learn much about mindfulness of sensation and mindfulness of walking. So it's, it's really up to you. But that, that's what's being uh, offered today. Was there more? 
Okay. Thank you. Please, right here. So I continue to be challenged with using my breath as a tool to relax and sink into the place where I can get to if I don't concentrate on my What place are you trying to get to? Um, A place of peace and not, in my mind, not being busy. So I, I, the the minute somebody says concentrate on my breath, I can't breathe naturally. Right, right. Thank you for saying that. Just the second part of what you said about trying to get to that place of peace and undistracted. I forgot what the other part was. Peace and tranquility. We try not to get to a place of peace and tranquility. We let peace and tranquility be the byproduct of being with our life as it's presenting itself. And so at, at first we want to, even with working with mindfulness of breathing, even if, there, if we find that we can't not control the breath, we don't want to have that be an impediment of we want that to just be what it is. So not be trying to get to that, get very good at that so that we can get to peace and harmony. Because then we're, we're waiting, we're postponing. But like you said, I think I heard you say that, but you can't feel the breath without controlling it or without managing it. It's distracting from... No, see, we're not trying to achieve not thinking about anything. <laughs> we're trying to achieve, at that point, we're just trying to achieve the capacity to feel the breath and feel our reactions to feeling the breath, which you did beautifully. It's not about some other, some other time. It's really about what's that experience of breathing. And what we will... <laughs> you may not be satisfied with that, with that response. But what you notice so beautifully is that you... You, um, there's something about it that feels that there's some way that you react to feeling the breath. So that's what we pay attention to. Now, if that reaction, not unlike with the neck, if that reaction gets so strong, then then our reactions becoming more prominent than the feeling of the breath, and we can attend to that. That's fine. But if it just keeps compounding, then perhaps you want to let the breath go for a moment. Feel your whole body sitting. Just feel the contact of your rear on the cushion. Let that be your anchor for a while because you're building up a little tension around it. But part of the tension is to trying to get to something else. I have a feeling. See if you can, see if you can take equal interest to what happens when you work with the breath. Now, for a lot of people, the breath is not a safe or it, it's a difficult object for people to be with. And there is a strong tendency to start to control it and to try to direct it and then to be almost afraid that if I don't direct it and control it, I'll stop breathing. Even though it goes 99% of the time all by itself. Somehow we think that you know, our controlling mind, our little ego mind, thinks that we have to stay you know, right on top of it. So it's a dance to both attend to it and then when we realize we're tensing up around it to just keep practicing letting go. So it's an opportunity to, to really soften, to allow life, allow the body to breathe. And even if the next second, controlling it again, relax. So you can learn a lot. In fact, if, we did, if I offered nothing else but mindfulness of breathing, the whole 
of, of the Four Noble Truths, the, all the teachings can be realized just working with the breath. You see that there's some tension or pain, First Noble Truth, what, in, what exacerbates pain, what turns it into suffering is our reactivity, wanting things to be other than the way they are. There's an end to that, a possibility of softening, and there's a path. The center of that path is being mindfully aware of what your mind is doing, and you're fulfilling it right on the breath. So, good luck. Please. Hi. Um, I, I found myself getting really sleepy. Uh, like I would start out... Hey, were you uh, sitting like that? No, I was sitting a little bit. More. <laughs> I was actually laying on the ground. Uh, no, no. <laughs> You're being facetious now? Yeah, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I would start off aware, but then just over time get, yes. get sleepy. By the three-minute mark, I was just really almost like groggy. I just wanted to yeah. know your Thank thoughts you. on that. Thank you for Thanks. that comment. How many of you felt sleepy? universal experience. How many of you felt restless at, from time? Universal experience. You will alternate during a day like this, especially as you establish practice, whether you've practiced for 50 years or whether it's your first day. Settling into a practice period, you will alternate between sleepiness and restlessness. Why does this happen? When we sit, Quiet, sound of silence, getting back to you. It's quiet, eyes are closed. Our mind says, wow, not much going on here. Reminds me of nighttime. (laughs) Time to sleep. No, that's one reason. What happens in a context like this, when, when you have people sitting together, there's a feeling of, there's a kind of field of, an increasing field of of quiet and safety. And so our body starts to relax a little bit because our mind and body are in the same location. Again, that harmony happens. So tranquility will arise often um, before we have a lot of vital energy. And why do I say that about vital energy? Our daily life zaps our vital energy. We're all chronically exhausted because we live on mental speed, on busyness, on, on distractedness. We're, we don't often nourish ourselves properly, mind and body. We're taking on a huge number of, of impressions every day. Stress. So often, we get tranquility when we come on retreat, but our vital energy is diminished. When you have high tranquility and low energy, what do you have? So the other side, our bodies, because we live so much in virtual time, our bodies are often abandoned. They aren't attended to. They're left often in a state of of freeze, of kind of suspended happiness. We're always looking ahead, looking back, and we're missing our bodily needs right now. So our bodies are often in a state of tension. And when we come to sit, we start to feel that tension. And a lot of the underlying tension that we're moving too fast to notice and so even if we have enough energy, often our, our underlying, there's so much tension underlying that has, from not having attended to ourselves well, that there is, um, that there is um, 
our bodies sometimes are not so quiet, not so relaxed, not so tranquil. So we have enough energy, but not much tranquility. And what's that? Energy, low tranquility, high energy, restlessness. So what we're doing today is we're trying to find our own, and throughout our practice, we're trying to find our own balance. And we can be our own authority. If, you're, if you don't have enough energy to match your tranquility, you need to do something that increases energy. That's why we walk, pick up the pace on your walking, stand up. That little extra energy to hold your body up will help you balance that. So do standing practices absolutely equal to sitting in its opportunity. And if you're if, you're, if you have a lot of restlessness, you want, to, uh, you want to soften the body, soften the awareness, let your mind be like a big pasture, like a big open sky. Give space to your body. Give space to your mind. It's kind of metaphor. Use the sense of space. Use, the, use as you talked about, loving kindness. Bring kindness, because that kind of softens the body. So kind, spacious, we work at relaxation. We, um, we just keep bringing our mind and body together, and they, eventually they harmonize a little more. So this is what we have to work with. Last question, then, we, then it's, um, I think we're at that lunchtime. This is a beautiful space, and we're being very nicely led through meditative practice. At home, I have a very stressful environment and I'm wondering how I can find a space or a place in that physically, mentally to be able to find the same kind of um, experience that I'm having here. Yes, a great question and it's one that I will more attend to at the end of the day so that you can kind of let yourself sink into this experience. But just a little sneak preview, just uh, I will share a, a a variety of things that you can do. One is to do learn the, the art of the quickie. You know, short periods, many times through the day. And also transferring some of the things that we're doing here just to, in the course of your day. And maybe the most important thing, uh, not hypnotically inducing the idea that you don't have time or you don't have space. We are constantly telling ourselves this. So we, it's, partly tracking the way that we talk to ourselves. And then another part is just making sure that we carve out some time and space and in little increments first. And in terms of uh, neuroscience, the latest is that we need at least 12 minutes just to have any kind of 12 minutes every day just to change our brains a little bit. Uh, But um, you can... There's plenty of time. I I once read something that says... uh, Somebody's saying, I don't, uh, I don't have time to do a half hour of practice. And so then the teacher said, then you need to do an hour. <laughs> so it's, we really, you can. And I, you know, it might be best if I talk to you one-on-one, but we'll talk more this afternoon about the practice in daily life because, of course, that's where the rubber meets the road. So thank you. So again, a pleasure sitting you with, with you this morning. We're just getting warmed up, so a lot of the beginning is a lot of words, a lot of launching energy. But we'll let ourselves cook this afternoon a little bit. And one of the ways that you can let yourself cook is to 
maintain some continuity of mindful attention through the lunch period. And that means to, when you eat, know that you're eating. Know that you're moving your hand toward your mouth. Notice when it starts happening more rapidly, like a helicopter. And, and at least the first bites, put them in your mouth. Notice the food in your mouth. Notice the chewing, noticing the burst of flavor, notice the swallowing. No different in its opportunity for continuity of mindfulness. So eat mindfully, feel free to rest if you need to, take a little nap if you need to, take a walk if you'd like to, please don't go beyond the gate because of the residential retreat, but otherwise the the land is available to you. And I would highly recommend that before we come in to sit at about, uh, we'll say, 20 minutes to 2, at about, we'll stop here about 1.40-ish, 1.35, 1.40, that when you come in to sit for the afternoon, before you do that, do a little walking meditation um, so that you build up a little energy because the first sitting of the afternoon can really look like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. So, so please do a little walking and be mindful and Please respect the silence of the people who want to remain silent. So even though I would usually hesitate to um, expand the instructions much further so quickly in a retreat, our time is short and so I'm going to pour a lot in in a short amount of time. But uh, the most important thing is that you don't have to look for any of the experiences that I present. You can stay settled back in your body with your breath, But if one of these experiences presents itself in your meditation today, then I'll offer just offering some tools of how to work with them. So we started the day by finding our body, putting our attention in the same location as our body, which is surprisingly rare. (laughs) We tend to be Tend to, tend to be absorbed in the imagined past, the imagined future, and often somewhat disembodied. And the effect of being disembodied is that our, our bodies become frozen and tense, and that tension tends to generate a lot of discursive thinking. And so we get, end up in a kind of vicious cycle of getting increasingly more disconnected from and less at home with the living present. So by gently using our body as a, a, an anchor, why do we use our body? Because one, it's always here, at least as long as we're alive. It's always here, and when one puts one's mind in one's body, there is a harmonizing. Mind harmonizes with the body, or attention harmonizes with the body. And the effect of that as the Buddha described, just this simple act of connecting. It's called vitaka. The word is vitaka. means gathering or connecting. It's what we do when we focus on anything. But when that focus is on our, our own mind and body, when we connect, and then the second quality called vichara, sustained. When we connect and sustain. In other words, we stay with that experience knowing that we won't stay with it long, but increasingly. Connect and sustain. What comes with it 
is what are called um, concentration factors, qualities of mind that come together, that emerge when our mind and body are in the same location. And those qualities are ones called sukha, which is comfort, ease, happiness. Another quality is called... um, it's called pity or rapture. We feel this kind of rapt, intense interest, even a feeling of rapture, a kind of energetic change. And we feel what's called ekagata or one-pointed. And one-pointed is that sense of, for at least in moments, our mind's not going here and there. It's just, we're just here. This, we've arrived at that. We've connected with life right where it touches us. You know, just, we connect with all of life. So it's sometimes called the single point that includes everything. So all that's the fruit of the simple act of connecting and sustaining. That's what we were doing. So putting our mind in our body. Just for just a little background information. But it turns out that, that those same qualities grow. The same qualities of, of, of that quality of aiming and sustaining and comfort and rapture and one-pointedness. All the the ingredients of what, what uh, comes together as what we call concentration. These are, concentration is something that happens. It's not something we do. What we do is we just gather our attention. We aim it. We gently come together. And then at, from time to time, concentration happens where we, all of a sudden we feel more unified, more whole. So we use these qualities all the time, but when they are presented in meditation, it, we, we start to wake up. And it is this quality of wakefulness, when, we sh- when it shines on our, our experience, we start to learn things. It allows us to, to really see what's going on more clearly, so that we're not in a state of confusion. We're not in the, we can see the difference between what's, what's happening real time and what my mind is telling me about something that's already happened or, or may never happen. And uh, actually, that reminds me. Here's what the Dalai Lama says. When asked what surprised him most about humanity, answered, man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he's so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he's never going to die and then dies having never really lived. So we don't want to have that be the story of our life. I was, life is what happened while I was busy making other plans, you know, to kind of approximate John Lennon's line. We want to actually experience our lives. So it turns out that this quality of collectedness and all the intelligence that comes with being collected, being attentive, being current in real time, not only does it grow through experiencing our attention to breathing, but it grows through attention to any other experience. Any other experience, when it is brought under the light of attention, it has the equal effect of creating those conditions for comfort and one-pointedness, everything I just described. It goes by by a different name, but basically it's the 
collectedness that arises from noticing changing experience. And so as we go through the day, I'm expanding the different experiences that you can notice. And I, I say this again just so that you don't consider things other than the breath as a distraction. I said it earlier in the day. But just another thing to gather your attention to. Whatever it is that what we say, whatever it is that predominates, that's what we pay attention to. But to think that I have to go looking for all these different experiences, it can be overwhelming. So we keep it simple. We just connect with our body and our breath. But I'll just give you a little sneak preview on some of the rest. What you will also know, notice from time to time, what will come to visit, unbidden. And this is another part of our insight as we see how sensations and moods and different states of mind and sounds, they come all by themselves. So we're not in control of what comes into our mind. Now don't believe me, but this is what happens. If you pay attention, you'll see that whatever comes into your mind is not your fault. In fact, my friend Wes Nisker says, you are not your fault. That we are, even the fact that we're here is the coming together even though we're here as a human, it's coming together of conditions that are not even personal. Our parents, our culture, our country, you know, so many things had to come together. So it's, you're not as personal as you think you are, even though you do have unique individuality, but it's made up of so many conditions that are outside of your control. I mean, even the sh- we're even shaped by the weather and by earth, air, fire, water, so many things. So... Our biggest issue is that we personalize everything. And then it often leads to a sense of blame and a sense of insufficiency. And then, you know, then we're spinning in some story of ourselves and missing how amazing it is that we're here and how we came to be. That's amazing. We lose our sense of awe and wonder. So this is what we try to recover. We try to see, oh, wow, I'm sitting here minding my own business in a way just gathering my attention, and all of a sudden, without any prompting, all hell breaks loose. My body starts hurting. My thought, 65,000 thoughts are flowing through my mind. You know, and they say that 90% of those are repeats from the day before. Who asked for those? Whose fault is that? Oh, I shouldn't be thinking so much. It's just thinking happens. It's according, it arises according to conditions. And we are conditioned to be disembodied, and the more disembodied we are, the more we tend to have discursive thinking. So please be so gentle, merciful, when you notice how much the thinking mind thinks. It thinks. Thinking is to our door of perception called mind, as a sound is to the ear, as a smell is to the nose, as a taste is to the tongue, as a sensation is to the body. Do you think we should not have all those other things? It's just as organic to think as it is to, is to feel and breathe, for that matter. So there's a little different orientation to this idea is thoughts are a problem. I need to quiet my thoughts. We need to relate to our thinking and relate to every experience. It's not, it is not so much what it is that's happening in your meditative experience. It's how you relate to it. And just a little, since I'm wrapping, I, I want to just share a little piece that is both good on the cushion and off the cushion. 
This is a teachings of a 92-year-old, petite, well-poised, proud lady who is fully dressed each morning at 8 o'clock with her hair fashionably coiffed and makeup perfectly applied, and she has just moved into a nursing home. Her husband of 70 years recently passed away, making the move necessary. After many hours of waiting patiently in the lobby of the nursing home, she smiled sweetly when told her room was ready. As she maneuvered her walker to the elevator, I provided a visual description of her tiny room, including the eyelet sheets that had been hung on her window. I love it, she stated, with the enthusiasm of an eight-year-old having just seen, been presented with a new puppy. Mrs. Jones, you haven't seen the room. Just wait. That doesn't have anything to do with it, she replied. Happiness is something you decide on ahead of time. Whether I like my room or not doesn't depend how the furniture is arranged. It's how I arrange my mind. I already decided to love it. It's a decision I make every morning when I wake up. I have a choice. I can spend the day in bed recounting the difficulty I have with the parts of my body that no longer work or get out of bed and be thankful for the ones that do. Each day is a gift, and as long as my eyes are open, I'll focus on the new day and all the happy memories I've stored away just for this time in my life. She went on to explain, old age is like a bank account. You withdraw what you've put in. So my advice to you would be to deposit a lot of happiness in the bank in the bank account of memories. Thank you for your part in filling my memory bank. I am still depositing. But basically, her five ways of living, what I call mindfully, is free your heart from hatred. Every moment of mindfulness is a moment free of hatred, just so you know. It's a moment of non-grasping, non-contentiousness. Free your mind from worries. You're present. You're not feeding the worrying mind. You're not lost in, what, in a future that never arrives. Because you know then, when you're present, that time is always now. Three, live simply. Nothing more simple than aware presence. Four, give more. That's a, of course, that's a, the first pillar of the teachings of the Buddha is to practice in every possible way in your life generosity. It's a, it's a human example of, uh, of the experience of letting go and, and brings reliably joy to, with the thought of it, joy in the act of it, and joy in the memory. So that's aside from our that's not what we're practicing today, other than being generous with ourselves. And then five, expect less. Don't live in, in expectations. And that's, again, fulfilled by every moment that you open to your life as it is. So what we're doing here is we're learning how to open to a whole range of experience. So it's not so much what happens, it's how I relate to it. So we started with breath, included physical sensations and sounds. And this afternoon, I will uh, we'll start with the common mental states that when un- unnoticed, tend to torment us a lot. When noticed, they become what we call the manure of Bodhi, as Trungpa Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher, called them. They become our path, these States of mind that when we don't recognize them, they hypnotize us into thinking we can't find any happiness now. First one is the wanting mind. 
the desire for sense pleasures, desire for even pleasure in your sitting, desire for the end of the day when you think will be pleasurable, the end of the, the, end of the sitting. Any of you during the morning sittings wait for the bell to ring? That's the wanting mind, associating your happiness. The secret to happiness is the bell ringing. And we're fooled by the fact that we feel a sense of relief when the bell rings. But what brings the relief is not so much the bell ringing because the objects are endless. What brings the relief is we're no longer in a state of wanting. But instead of waiting for the bell to ring to feel that passing away of wanting, we turn our attention toward that experience. We notice, oh, waiting for the bell to ring, wanting, hoping, waiting, expecting, all the different forms of what we call craving or, or, or sense desire. And instead of making those wrong and trying to suppress them, we just notice, oh, this is what wanting feels like. And we don't get too involved in the object of our wanting, which is, like I said, is endless. We feel what it feels like to be in a state of wanting. And when you let yourself feel that, you'll feel a certain kind of physical connection to that. You'll see how it manifests in your mind. There might be a little story or a narrative about you know, how happy you'll be when you get what you want. But what we do is we feel the state of wanting. And if you bring attention to it, you'll see that it comes and it goes. It's like weather. And sometimes it passes away and the, the bell hasn't even rung yet, you know, in regard to that. So the flip side of this is aversive mind, the irritated mind, the, the frustrated mind, the, the, you know, the, yeah, the irritated mind, the aversive mind. It's having aversion toward what's present. So we pay attention to that too. The objects are endless of aversion. Many things we're complaining, don't like. Here we say, oh, this is what aversion feels like. This is what irritation feels like. Same with restlessness and agitation. We turn toward that feeling itself rather than letting it kind of generate an endless stream of, of worry or guilt, which is often associate, often brings a lot of restlessness. We notice, oh, this is what restlessness feels. And sloth and torpor, dullness, we talked about that earlier. We feel that sense of dullness. Sometimes just by paying attention to the state of dullness, it, uh, it lifts. It may, it's the kind of dullness that doesn't so much have to do with being tired. It has to do with just a habit of mind that I don't want to be present. Form of aversion. And last but not least, the state of mind of doubt. Uh, confusion, uncertainty. It's the mind that says, I, I can't get this. I, this is, you know, everybody else is getting enlightened except me. And the teacher doesn't look so enlightened either. So it could be done. <laughs> so again, we don't, this, there's a narrative, but there's often a feeling of doubt. And if doubt goes unnoticed, it's completely diminishing. It just zaps us in our life. Our, it's self-doubt, doubting what we're doing, doubting. And instead, in our practice, we turn it into, we just turn it into another thing to pay attention to. We go, oh, doubt is like this, and we feel it. And that very thing that usually diminishes our practice, it actually wakes us up if you turn attention to it. So these are called the five hindrances that when unnoticed, they hinder our practice. When you, tune in, when you turn toward them, they actually awaken our practice. Does this make sense? So I'd like to include those in our sitting right now. 
as well some, uh, any other moods that may arise or s- states of mind, joy, sorrow, ease, agitation, the whole range of different mental states. Please. Desire, sense desire, aversion, desire and aversion, which are just flip sides of the same thing. Desire, aversion, restlessness and agitation, sloth and torpor, and doubt. So it is okay if you jotted a few things down here, but for the sitting I would like you to suspend your notebook. And Okay, soft, softly, let your eyes close. And make sure that as you close your eyes and feel the contact of your eyelids, that they are soft, relaxed. Because our noticing is not with our eyes in this practice, it's with our whole being. I want you to feel the experience of the sitting body sitting, feel its sensations, its vibration, its aliveness. And let your sitting body guide you to this sense of gentle stillness. And then gently, again, Notice the way your body breathes. That felt experience that lets you know that your body is breathing in and out. Breath by breath. And even though attention is alert and active, it's also very receptive. So you want to receive the breath as it emerges in this moment. You want to connect with it and sustain that connection through the duration of the in-breath and the out-breath. If you're okay with the breath, continuing to let this be your primary anchor. Of course, it's also okay to use your whole body as a primary anchor. Feeling that sense of the whole body and the touching of your rear on the cushion, sitting and touching. So we keep either of these as the primary anchor, but then we make ourselves available to sounds and sensations. 
And when we do experience a predominant sensation or any of those states of mind, we recognize them. We accept that we are experiencing whatever it is. And then we investigate what happens to the experience that's being noticed. And we try not to interfere with the process of feeling, sensations, or mental states. We let the physical and the mental weather come and go like we do our external weather. And when whatever experience you're noticing is no longer predominant or compelling or has passed away, in behalf of staying anchored to this unfolding present, we connect again with our sitting body, our breath. And we just sink into it. Stick to it. Breath by breath moment by moment. Everything met with grace, with kindness, kindfulness. Just this moment.
Are you aware right now? What are you aware of? And how are you relating to what you are aware of? Are you open and relaxed? Are you resistant or contentious? Are you trying to make something happen? Are you lost in a narrative about your experience? Just notice that. Everything is included in mindful awareness.
Again, no matter how many times you realize you've been lost in thought, each moment of that noticing is a moment of mindful attention, presence. When you wake up to where you are, appreciate that, relax. And in behalf of staying anchored to the living present, we connect with our sensations again, which are always present. Connect with our breath, sitting body. We gently put that puppy back on the paper. Never harshly, never with judgment. with an understanding that our minds are untrained. Just this moment, just this breath, or whatever it is that you're noticing.
three more minutes. Begin the practice now. For those of you who may be curious about the, the little gesture that, um, the little bowing that is completely optional is it's really just a, a gesture of respect to what you're doing, what each other is doing, and, um, and the acknowledgement that we're, that we're attending to ourselves and each other in a way that's non-harming and skillful, and so it's, but it's completely optional. Many people find that there's a quality of a kind of mind and mind and heart kind of coming together when you put your hands like this, and so it has a has an energetic effect as well. But 
you don't have to join the club. <laughs> and that's a, I'm, I'm always, um, I think the most inspiring thing to me when I first came to this particular practice, which is now 47, 48, wait, 30, 30 this particular practice, 38 or 39 years ago, uh, I was completely inspired by the a Pali line that kept being repeated over and over in the tra- in the chanting. And it, in Pali, it goes "Ehi paseko opanayeko pachatan we ditapu winyuhiti," which basically means, for those who are interested, to come and see for themselves. <laughs> Don't believe me. And I just found that to the, that the whole notion of faith and confidence was not based on adopting a new set of beliefs or views, which is just turns people into fundamentalists. But rather, the faith and confidence are born of direct experience. Uh, it's called the difference between blind faith that's based on belief and verified faith based on what you see for yourself. So, so I, again, that's the bowing, the same thing. See for yourself, does it? Does it connect or... Then the last thing in that same vein is I always like to tell each group that the, the Buddha was, was I, maybe I said it earlier, the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist, somebody who believed a certain thing. The Buddha was awake. Was just, and all that he did for the next 45 years was give people the tools to see for themselves uh, whether or not, you know, what it is that is common to all of us, what makes us suffer, what allows us to actually be happy and be free in this life. And then to test out whatever the, what he called skillful means, whatever means that he offered that would help us to live more wisely, lovingly, more happy. So all we're doing today is, is getting ourselves in the same neighborhood as our experience so that we can see for ourselves what's going on. And... Uh, Bhante Gunaratna, one of my favorite uh, insight meditation teachers, speaks to what we often experience uh, when we sit down with ourselves long enough. He says, soon or somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. (laughs) Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way, and you never noticed. But in a much more poetic and, and, and to me, inspiring way, the, the philosopher or teacher Francois Fenelon, who lived between 1651 and 1715, said... As light increases, and often the metaphor of light is used for our attention. As light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be Amazed nor disheartened, we are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we are filled with horror. But bear in mind, for your comfort, that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. Uh, 
So, so the cure has begun, even if what you've seen is, a, as Rumi puts it, a crowd of sorrows that's emptying your house of its furniture. He says, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. So, what did you notice during the last sitting? Working with sensations, sounds, mental states, the hindrances. Did any of you notice anything or what was the state of your heart and mind? Are there any questions or comments before we do some walking? Perfectly enlightened. Hang on, we have a... Sorry, thank you for your patience. Well, I just put together that, you know, at, at home, um, I want my dog to be quiet, but if she's just sitting there quiet and I say quiet, then she'll start whining and stuff. So it just reminded me of that. Great. Yeah. If you, exercises. Yeah. Don't say quiet or you're in, you'll be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We want to just notice hearing, just hearing. See that we always think a sound is bothering us, but we're actually bothering the sound with our reactivity. And that's a challenging thing to take responsibility for our experience and not make attributions to everything and everyone else, even when it's a politician. <laughs> I'm not saying you shouldn't advocate for for your position, but uh, our reactivity, the suffering that we may experience is really optional. People are going to be the way they are. Whether we suffer about them has to do a lot with our own reaction. Please. Wait, 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 wait. One sec. Please be patient. Wait for the mic. I was thinking that the space between breaths could be thought of as the void. Why not have no thought about that space? Don't even call it a space. (laughs) Do we need a name for it? No, but I've always been fascinated with the void since I was a little girl. Uh Great. So I want you to hang out in that space. Remove space and remove void. (laughs) once more right here I don't know if it's because we did this practice twice this morning but it was a lot easier doing it now a lot easier interesting because I, I usually congratulate people for making it through the first sitting of the afternoon because it's often the one where there's a lot of fatigue and very scattered and so the, I appreciate that it was easier for you. And there is a little bit of a buildup, but it, it, you'll also notice over the course of your practice that any time that it is easy or the easeful or your mind does come to that single point, it will usually or often be followed by the next sitting by being completely scattered. And this is how the practice deepens. It goes purity, the mind opens and relaxes, followed by purification, Purity, purification. This is why in this practice and in our life in general, we emphasize rather than getting to some special state, we emphasize equanimity, learning how to be with it when it's easy, 
learning how to be with it when it's difficult. But I, I, I do think there is a buildup, though, and it does get, it can get increasingly. Even with the hills and the valleys, it can get increasingly e- more easeful. Thank you. A hand right here, and then, oh, back here, please. Here, bring the, my, for the next person, she's right here, and go ahead, please. Um, I just wanted to say I loved at that three-minute mark you saying you can begin <laughs> at the three minutes left. It made me smile when you let us know that it's never too late to get back into what we were. That's right. Every, the beautiful thing about anywhere in our life, every moment is a new beginning. You know, where's the past now? Where's the future now? You know, it's just things just as it is. So I'm glad you picked up on that. Begin again. And that reminds me that there, sometimes as we're getting farther into a sitting, our body starts to hurt a little bit. Any of you feel some discomfort? Nobody's confessing your discomfort. Thank you. Okay. So I, I talked about a gentle stillness. And stillness of body helps to promote a steadiness of mind, but it's not meant to be a torture test. First, what we do is we try to accommodate the discomfort and see if we can experience discomfort without mental suffering. To see that the, maybe pain is inevitable, but the suffering part is optional. That's, that's something very central to these teachings. But we work with our discomfort, try to open to it, but if, we're, if our reactivity is getting so intense, we're struggling so much, then it is not wise, nor is it loving, to try to maintain that posture. You're actually practicing tension and resistance. So at that moment that you're experiencing a lot of discomfort and you're noticing you're getting more reactive, then please, very mindfully, refresh yourself. Make a slight change in your posture. And that's another moment where you can begin again. And that... um, the key in making a change of posture is not to do it reactively, not to just move, but to make it part of the stream of, of continuity of attention. So as I straighten my leg, I straighten it. As I bring it back, I bring it back. And I know that whole process. So in that way, I'm keeping the kettle on the stove. And it keeps building up that, that current of mindful attention, which has the effect of, of quieting us down a little bit. So thank you for the begin again reminder. And you had your hand, please. Um, I had a really strange difference between earlier today and this meditation, which was that earlier I was really like having trouble with the notion of the past not existing. Yeah, that's a little freaky, isn't it? And I was, while I was meditating before I kept, like that thought and that idea kept coming into my mind in this very like academic way that was really like flummoxing me and I just was like well that doesn't make sense and and then I'd be like okay never mind I can't think about that <laughs> I'm not allowed to think about that I cut so it great. off and that kept happening and then this time I think I got equally like the interruptions were as frequent where I had to kind of bring myself back except it wasn't that argument about the past it was like um, clips of cartoons that I'd seen in the past 
So it was less like a like a like an argument and more like oh. actual things from the past. But there were cartoons I'd seen, and so, I, I just think that was. So when were you experiencing those things of the past? Um. Oh, do you mean the cartoons? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm asking oh. a kind of rhetorical question. You were experiencing those cartoons from the past in the present. Yeah. And whatever that past, those past moments, you experienced them in the present when they were present. So there's only ever been a present. Yeah. But we, but we remember those past experiences. We feel the effect of those, pract- pra- pra- those past experiences in an unfolding present. So... You, so we see that there really is not a, th- a place called past. We only know the past by our memories and by the effects of, of those past present moments. So, but I love that you, I love your whole description. That's a description of, of just tracking what's going on in your mind. And that's what we do here. So that's great. Ideally, we want to notice um, past thoughts or arguing thought you know, much more the process of, oh, there's my mind arguing, and just kind of notice that. Isn't that interesting? Please. So, um, I mean, I've had a teacher, like, explain to it, uh, you know, I've been practicing for about four or five years, and, and he's touched on it before with the slightly, a slight smile on your face, and I, I've tried it a few times, but recently in the last, like, six months, I really have adopted it into my practice. Like when you talk about when we awaken, when we come back and we notice, you know, that we've been thinking or something like that, I'll get, I'll, I'll you know, create this little slight smile and kind of rejoice in Great. that. And, and I notice, and I notice that like it kind of, that kind of awareness arises naturally. Like I used to try to, okay, be kind that, that, you know, that I'm lost in thought, you know, it was kind of like whipping myself in, into kind awareness, but with that, without doing anything and just the slight smile, it's like a naturally kind awareness kind of goes, oh, and I kind of rejoice in, in awakening and I just want to throw that out there. It it works. You've had a beautiful attitude adjustment just by changing your facial expression. Yeah. Not, I mean, not a big shitting grin, just a little, you know, a little, a little, uh, just, just that slight little movement and it just, it changes everything. It's it's beautiful. That's great. And, you know, a lot of the inability to be friendly to ourselves when we realize that the attention has wandered is we think that, that there's a little agent in there that, that caused that to happen. Mm-hmm. So that we think we're in control of our mind wandering and coming back. Mm-hmm. But part of meditative wisdom is you see, oh, I'm, I'm doing the best I can to be here, and all of a sudden some thoughts arise and they start to connect and mindfulness doesn't seem to be rising to go along for the ride and I'm gone. But whose fault is that? You know, where, where's the blame in that? So the more you see how it just happens, the more you're, you just stop blaming yourself and the more you can be just spontaneously friendly mm-hmm. to the fact that you're now present again. So it becomes less about uh, some, kind of, um, some kind of confirmation of your own value. And that's... As soon as your practice gets all bound up in your value of, of comp- some comparing to an ideal, it's, it's going to be a torment. Mm-hmm. Try to just be easy, and if it helps to put a smile on your face to help that along, fantastic. Great. You are not your fault.
Okay, last comment, question, and then we'll do some walking. I'd, um, I'd had the experience before of uh, noting distracting sensations, you know, a pain or, you know, like you're saying, stabbing, burning, whatever. And sometimes that can be really helpful. I'll stick with it long enough and it'll turn to warmth or heat or, you know, it'll transform the sensation. But I hadn't had the, um, the instruction you gave earlier of, of focusing on different part of the body that maybe wasn't so so react or maybe the, uh, something that was pleasant or pain or pleasurable or, or um, you know the heaviness of my shoulders or the openness of the chest or whatever and this last session that was really um, I don't know kind of an aha moment for me to realize that it's not it's not like a trick or something to like avoid thinking about you know the painful knee or whatever the other thing is it's really being compassionate to myself and and understanding that there is a separate part of my experience that maybe I wasn't seeing before. So that was a very helpful instruction for me. So glad to hear that. Part of what inspired me, I mean, there's been so many little pieces of what inspired me to include that a lot in the teachings, but there was a a story I read in a a Jewish journal called uh, Tikkun. And the person, uh, it was a rabbi who was telling a story about this, the tendency when we, if our thumb is struck by a hammer, all of our attention fixates on the pain. And then all of our reactivity gets bound up in, in dealing with that pain. And we forget that 95% of our body is in great shape. <laughs> and it's the same thing we do with the worldly affairs. We forget that so many countless millions, billions are beautiful and doing beautiful things because we fixate on the, on the you name the politician, we fixate on the ones who are, who are lunatics. Sorry. <laughs> so it's the same thing with our body when we face, when we, our tendency is to not just have experience some discomfort but to compound that with a lot of reactivity, because, partly because we fixate in a reactive way on what's going on. If we could focus on the pain that we're experiencing with an open-hearted, interested, kind awareness, then that pain that is so intense can be incredibly riveting, cause a lot of concentration, cause a lot more sharp awareness, and you can learn about the nature of reality. But if we've gotten, if our reactions have gotten so compounded from fear or from, from just that, that tendency, that conditioned tendency to react, so to tighten up, if that's happening, then the wisest thing to do is to shift your attention. And, and what, you read, what you're really doing is you're calibrating your, your attitude. You're calibrating your reactivity so that you can then uh, meet it with a little more openness. So, glad you got that. Okay, we have an opportunity now to really cook, so uh, we'll have a 15-minute walking period since it's so warm out. You can, of course, find space in this building as well to practice inside, but please take care with the transition so that there's a kind of seamless flow of mindfulness. Transition to the walking space, do some walking, and in 15 minutes, the gong will go off and we'll have another five-minute transition, so we'll sit again in 20 minutes from now. So please stay with it. Even if you've planned your escape, don't believe your thoughts. 
And also, I'll be sitting here if anybody wants to check in briefly.
an appropriate uh, meditative attitude, wise, loving meditative attitude that um, I think is useful for all of us in our practice is expressed beautifully in a poem from Pesha Joyce Gertler. Her poem called The Healing Time. Finally, on my way to yes, I bump bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one close to my heart and I say, holy, holy. So we want to meet all of our experience as in some ways holy. Not just take it for granted that it's amazing just to feel deeply, to see clearly, to hear, to smell, to taste, to feel the whole range of emotions, and to think how amazing. The Tibetans have a word called emaho, how amazing. And we often think of everything as a problem and lose that sense of awe and wonder at just the fact that we have this experience. And mostly in terms of these feelings, these hieroglyphs of pain, our emotions, our sensations, etc., we tend to not actually feel them, we tend to think about them. So we're great at thinking about our feelings, we're not so good at feeling them. So part of our meditative awareness is to experience nature, the weather, the internal weather, directly. So that even those mental states that I talked about, the desire, aversion, restlessness, sloth and torpor, doubt, they all, as, along with all the other states of mind and states of the heart, moods and emotions, they all have both words associated with them, but they mostly all have with them a felt experience, a nature experience. Something that can be, that has texture. And that's why when it's felt, it, it draws our mind into our body and it brings more peace. When we simply move from, the, from that felt sense very quickly into the narrative, the narratives about our experience are endless and they usually have associated with them some idea that uh, whatever this is that I, I'm not able to feel, it will get better someday. And so our mind often in reaction to not knowing how to accommodate our feelings, how to accommodate the inner weather, our mind goes into reaction. Why does it go into reaction? It seems that it is the law of human nature that when an experience is pleasant, we have basically three kinds of feelings that accompany every experience at any one of our senses. Experiences are either pleasant 
unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant. When they're pleasant, it's in our nature, especially when it goes unnoticed, to be quickly followed by the sense of, I like this. And that I like this is often, when, especially when unnoticed, is followed by, I want more of this. And meanwhile, we don't realize that I like and I want both produce a little tension. They both produce a charge, like an electrical charge. And that charge builds up. We call that attachment, grasping. And that when that attachment or that charge builds up, it has to release. How does it release? It releases by generating discursive thinking. And before you know it, we have... Uh, we have moved from the simple reality of a feeling to, as the teachings on proliferation or what's called complication, elaboration, it's called papancha, which is translated as the unbidden going of the mind away from the present to imagined experiences or objects. Or a more traditional translation, the propensity of the worldling's imagination to erupt in an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare data of cognition. So meanwhile, what we react to liking, wanting, and it, our mind goes into planning, strategizing. And then pretty soon we're no longer feeling our feeling, we're, we're mostly in our, our narrative. And the reverse is true, which is something unpleasant. We tend to not like and then start to feel aversion or fear or agitation and that pressure builds and pretty soon we're, we're saying this person who's sitting next to me not, I won't, none of you but this person is the cause of my unhappiness they should be different the world should be different and if they're not different I'll never, I won't be happy and we make a case for the prosecution or we make a case for the prosecution against ourselves and we have this phenomena on retreats called the VR and the VV, both on day-longs and on residential retreats. The VR is the Vipassana romance, where someone here triggers a pleasant feeling. You like the way they walk or their sandals or whatever it is. It produces a pleasant feeling, and before you know it, with that little, that little chain of associations, it turns into, in this matter of a minute, this massive fantasy of mating, dating, marriage, divorce, travel. And of course, nothing happened. But our mind has just entered into, uh, it's gone away from the living present to imagined experiences or objects, an effusion of mental commentary that obscures the bare date of cognition. So, we, so it's so innocent, both with pleasant and unpleasant, to end up in discursive thinking. And so what, what's that? The VV. Oh, the VV is somebody triggers an unpleasant feeling and then they become the reason for all your misery. And it's amazing on residential retreats where the meals are, are offered, the, sometimes the cooks will get hate mail. And it's, and it's often certain times in the retreat where there's, as we're settling in, 
where people are prone to a lot more aversion. It usually transits after a few days and then they fall in love with the same food and the same cooks. But meanwhile, there are these moments where everything gets projected onto, the, onto something or someone. And this is called the, the Vipassana Vendetta. And, <laughs> and it's just human. However, what we do in, medita- in meditative awareness is we try to pay attention to that whole sequence. Instead of making the stories that our mind tells as real and then being kind of identified with that character who we've made in our mind, both the imagined version of ourselves that's playing in that narrative and the imagined version of somebody else, we just notice it as the aversive mind. We notice it as the judging mind, of the, the attacking mind, whatever it is. It just becomes another thing to notice. And we use it to expand beyond the narrative to actually feel the state of aversion. So this very same feeling calls us here to a place of balance and calm because we're accommodating it. And if we can accommodate it, we can metabolize it. We can, we can come to a place of balance with it. And then there's, the more we open to our experience, we can come to a point where there's not any experience that we can't accommodate. And that's where we begin to develop the quality of equanimity. It says internally, I can experience this too. I don't have to make my well-being dependent on this going away or that person being different. I can see what my mind is screaming about this other person. I can feel the effect of that in my body. And then I realize that the other person's just doing their thing. The cooks are just cooking the best meal they can. And, And I have a conditioned habit of blaming Uh, Because I don't know, up to this point, I haven't known how to accommodate the feeling of aversion. And it's not to say that once I've accommodated the feeling of aversion, I shouldn't uh, stop somebody from harming somebody. But I can do that from a place of wisdom rather than adding to the reactivity, which is just adds to the misery that's already big enough. So all of this is about learning how to be able to meet our experience wisely and lovingly and then to act in a way that doesn't add harm to ourselves or to other people. And uh, so that's why we try to learn how to accommodate these feelings. And then the thoughts and images, like I said before, thoughts are to our mind as a sound is to the ear. They're sense experience. And some of the thoughts that arise in our mind are very wise and some of them are not so wise. Some of them, in any, in any case, the, the thoughts about ourselves, they're just thoughts about ourselves. As one of my teachers put it, a thought of your mother is not your mother. Same is true about yourself. A thought of yourself is not yourself. It's an idea. It's a, it's a virtual version of you. Somebody who truly doesn't exist, this imaginary version, But of course you exist. You exist in full living color. But we often mistake the the version of ourselves that plays in our mind. We take that to be who we are and forget the one that's actually sitting right here, living, breathing, unique expression of life, of nature. But the version that plays in our mind is usually saying, you should be different. It's always measuring saying, oh, you're okay, you're not okay, you're better than, you're less than, you're, you're equal to. That measuring mind, it, there's no possible security in it. 
and it's both it's it's pretty much um, human, but it, it's not it can't quite capture your inherent beauty and uniqueness. That's something we experience and we feel when we see the difference between that field guide book playing in our mind and the bird that you are. And that direct experience is uh, not so easy to put in words. It's you just are. You're awake. And usually the more time you spend awake being as you are, the more out of that you just can't help but notice things. Notice each other. You can't help but care. Can't help but want to help. And if that, the wider your lens gets to both, not just in this room, but to the world in that way, how can you how can you let a single day go by when not everybody has the same access to education, to comfort, to power? And so we want to. We don't just want to expand our lens, open our lens to just this moment, but every moment of our life. And then, of course, we. You can't help but devote yourself to making sure that everybody experiences this. You know, I, when I'm saying this, I'm thinking of the, you know, the Buddha when he, when he left the, his family business and he became, you know, he was the prince and he, he became a renunciate and he, and he um, formed the Sangha. You know, he woke up and he formed the Sangha. He... Um, it was a radical social action. He was saying that, that access to these teachings and practices, it's not just for Brahmins, not just for the, for the white wealthy people. It's for everybody. So as soon as you entered the Sangha, the so-called untouchables sat next to the Brahmins. And they were basically, it was completely homogenous. That was, what, that was his contribution to, the, to bringing a kind of justice to the teachings where they weren't in this kind of rarefied space that only were available to people who could afford it. So we have to find our own way, but it's all about opening our eyes and opening our hearts to not just this moment, but our whole lives. How did I get off on that one? <laughs> so all of that's made easier if we learn how to stay in the present time and accommodate our feelings. We can't help but fall in love and fall in compassion to things and people and situations near and afar. If we're, but if we're living in virtual reality, we lose a sense of embodiment. We lose a sense. We lose sensitivity. And then we tend to be more reactive to the problems of the world rather than responsive. So hopefully you see that th- this is a very practical thing you're doing today. And it's not just for, for um, having a little more peace. It is a form of radical social action. Because if you think about it, as one of my teachers used to say, the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. And as long as people are the way they are, the world will keep being the way it is. 
you want a peaceful world, you have to have peaceful people. It's not something you can impose on anyone. It has to start within each of our hearts. So I, I'm so appreciative that you're, that you're engaged in this action. You may not have realized that you were doing it, you were by proxy benefiting all beings, but you are. All beings are cheering you on for your practice. Don't, don't uh, discount that. But it, you can't just think about it. You've got <laughs> to engage. So let's engage in one more formal sitting, at least for now. And we, we let go into the living present. For a time we let go of our ideas of the past. They will come to visit later, but for right now we let them go for this moment. We let go of our ideas of the future. And we locate ourselves here, embodied, And we settle into our anchor of the breath or sitting body. And we're, we settle back into the moment. Both physically aware of our back body as much as what's in front of us. 360 degree Awareness, sitting in the middle of it all, breathing in and breathing out. The purpose of our practice is always found in the present. So when sounds arise in present time, we graciously hear them. Notice the sounds appearing and disappearing When sensations arise, we feel them like points of feeling, stars flickering in an evening sky. We just feel the sensations because that's what's here. When moods come, we feel them like weather. We graciously receive them. And the same with thoughts and images like clouds floating through an open sky. We recognize the thoughts are their own thinkers. They appear and they disappear. 
And in the course of noticing the thought clouds as they appear and disappear, we begin to see the common themes of our thoughts. We see the planning mind, the remembering mind, the rehearsing mind, the judging mind, the evaluating mind, the critical mind. We don't necessarily think about what kind of thought it is, but if that occurs to us, great. We just notice, ah, planning, planning. If we have to think about it, we simply notice thinking mind, thinking. And with all the experiences, we, along with recognizing them in real time, we accept that this experience has arisen. We investigate its nature, what happens to it. We investigate its felt experience through our body. We recognize its changing nature, its selfless nature, how it arises and passes of itself. And when whatever experience that is predominant begins to fade or becomes less compelling, as it fades, we see its passing and we anchor our attention once again in the simple fact of being aware and the anchor of our breath or body. Just this breath, just this moment.
sounds, sensations, moods, thoughts and images appear and disappear in the open, sky-like nature of our mind. Is there awareness right now? What are you aware of? And how are you relating to your experience? Relaxed, open? Are you resistant or contentious? Trying to make something happen? Are you personalizing? your experience or seeing it as it is. Just notice. Nothing to do about this, nothing to undo, just aware of both the objects of meditation and the attitude through which we're perceiving. The attitude will determine whether you suffer about your experience.
So we move in the direction of an open mind or an open heart to whatever it is that arises. Just this moment.
Notice if you're waiting for the bell to ring. Expand beyond the image of the bell to feel the state of waiting or wanting. Notice what happens to that feeling when it's invited into mindful awareness. Inwardly noticing, oh, waiting is like this. I don't know exactly what's happening for you internally, but it's a great pleasure to sit with you, and I so deeply appreciate you staying with the day. Uh, This is, how many of you, this is your first day-long retreat? A lot. Well, this is incredibly strenuous and courageous to sit with yourself like this for a day, and so uh, much appreciation. And anybody really exhausted? 
It's often not uncommon. So before I share some stray thoughts as we somehow wind down our day together, I am curious if there are any questions or comments, descriptions, working with thoughts, images, emotions, sounds, everything. Here's someone. Here comes the microphone. So at the beginning of your guidance, you mentioned as thoughts and emotions arise to investigate and then watch them fade and then go back to breath or other anchor. Investigate, which, yes. That, there's a specific meaning meditatively of what we mean by investigate. That's what I wanted to ask because that seems significantly different from other types of meditation instruction which are simply to label and then perhaps much more quickly go back to the, to the breath to simply label it as a thought, for example. I suspect that the remaining uh, guidance you gave had to do with that investigation, but I'd like to hear a little bit more. Yeah. Well, investigation in a meditative sense is, uh, is, just so you know, it's not to analyze or interpret or think about what has just happened. Investigate simply means not just to notice and label it, but to see what happens to it. And you, when you notice, once there's a, a somewhat a quietness and a clarity of mind, you then can, know, investigating thoughts, you would see for yourself that they appear and they disappear. The, so the investigation would be, what is the process of a thought? Not so much why I'm having this thought or that thought, but it just means to notice the natural behavior of whatever it is that you're noticing. So if it, it's the same as if you were paying attention to a sensation in your leg, and you're, let's say it's knee pain, and you make a soft mental note of knee pain, knee pain, or aching, aching, but you hover there because that's what's predominant. You hover there and you notice that aching then becomes burning. And you know, burning, burning. And then stabbing, stabbing, stabbing. Searing, searing. So the investigation is to see how that morphs or changes, how it behaves, and see how it passes away. Same with thoughts. But you said also then... Somebody, where's the microphone? Wait, wait till the microphone gets back to you. But then you said, for example, later on, notice if you're personalizing... And isn't that analysis? You don't personalizing it in something that I have a picture of, you know, that I can't observe it. It's not like pain in the knee stabbing. So yeah. that sounds like analysis. Yeah, it's it's not exactly analysis. It's a. I appreciate the question. It's a little bit like noticing when you you're labeling. Over the course of noticing the flow of thinking, the appearing and then disappearing of thoughts, you start to see common themes. And one of those themes is identifying with or personalizing. It's, it's narrating, it, it's telling a story about, about the imagined me. And so that would be, we would call that, and you just see the frequency of that kind of personalizing thought. So that would just be another way of labeling it in a way. But you're not getting involved in the content of that personalizing. You're just seeing that as one of the common, what we call the top ten tunes that are, and that is clearly one of the top tunes, is personalizing. 
and other top tune, what would you say? Planning, remembering, rehearsing, judging, analyzing, projecting, futurizing, otherizing. Yeah. Who's next? Oh, please. So again, you can hear from this that we're not trying to get rid of any of these things, but we're trying to make a shift from being carried along and lost in our personalizing to noticing, oh, that's just, identi- that's just identity view. That's just the view of myself that uh, plays in my mind. Thank you. So Thank you. I'm wondering if this is a practice, what's the frequency we should engage in this practice? Just 24 hours a day. <laughs> With intention. <laughs> Thank you for the question. It was going to be part of my stray thoughts, but, uh, but um, since you've asked... I would say that um, the frequency is different for each person. I highly recommend that you put yourself in the posture of sitting every day to have your mind and your body together and have an experience of stillness and steadiness and to have that sustained at least 12 minutes but longer if you can. But as soon as I say that, your little internal voice is saying, I, I should be sitting like this. And then pretty soon you're fighting with your, what we call super ego and the, the shoulder and, and the, then we start, and then when we somehow don't measure up, or we, it, we get into a big conflict with it. But at least put yourself in the posture. Remind yourself of, that you value this coming together. Usually, I've never met a person who sat down and stayed for a while who was sorry they did. So long enough to, to really feel the resonance with that, but not to impose some pressure about how much time. And uh, otherwise you'll, you'll lose in a way. You want to let the time extend based on what you're experiencing, based on your interest that is dr- that's drawn from that f- experience of being present more. You also don't want to burden the sitting time with the expectation that it will cover all of your spiritual needs and hope for a trickle down. Because we've seen, as, and I hate to, for those of you who believe in this, but we've seen how trickle down economics doesn't work. It's the same with meditation. Trickle down doesn't work. You have to expand it to, you have to support from the, in all elements of your life, from the bottom up, everything, uh, Everyone and everything needs support. And so you do your best to bring every element of your life into the Dharma. And that's why this is going to be part of a little, little wrap on the Noble Eightfold Path. But before I get into that, um, it's just an everyday practice. You have to think of every day. You have to think of having practice be the hub around which you live your life. So it's not something you do as a hobby. It's not something you do only when you're uptight. You don't do it because it's good for you. You know, as Alan Watts says, you don't want it to turn into a grim duty, kind of self-punishment. You want to do it for, 
as he calls it, so that you can dig the present. Groove with the eternal now. And uh, to see that, you know, where it's at. You know, again, that beat language. Where it's at is simply here and now. So you want to you practice enough where that's the hub. And then if you, so that'll take a little pressure off the sitting time because you're, you're going to notice when you talk to someone, you're being mindful of your body when you're talking and mindful of listening. 60% in your body, settled in your body as you're talking to somebody, four, 20 to 40% listening. And you're not going to be busy as a practice when you're talking to somebody. You're not going to be busy rehearsing what you're going to say next. You may notice some thoughts, but you're, go- you're going to be much more settled in your body and trusting awareness and trusting that w- the words will come that are appropriate and necessary. Because awareness within it, this impersonal thing called awareness, it has embedded in it intelligence and caring. All the qualities are there. You're open. We tend to, we tend to make wiser choices, both our speech and our actions. So, that's while you're talking to people. When you're at the sink, washing your dishes, when you're sitting on the toilet, sitting on the toilet, know what you're doing when you're doing it. When you're walking down the street, as I talked about earlier today, the portability of walking meditation. Wherever you go, there you are. If you have a body, you can be mindful wherever you are. So as the hub of around which you live your life, it's also a reminder that you're always exactly where you are. And so you don't have to go fit this into your life. You just have to keep bringing every element of your life into this. Because you are the hub around which everything happens. So you're zooming down the road, but you're right where you are. And the scene is changing, you're right where you are. You're engaged in an argument or a conversation with somebody, you're right where you are. You're working, you're doing whatever you do, you're right where you are. So that's, that's why we want to really have that habit of being oriented to right where we are. And as I said earlier, in the more, in the earlier today, I would like all of us to do that to the extent where we've, the present becomes so interesting that our desire to be somewhere else diminishes. And then our life doesn't have to be obsessed by what's next and then anxious all the time. Because our happiness is associated with how things turn out instead of how things are. Because as one teacher put it, nothing can make you happier than you are fundamentally. That all search for happiness elsewhere is a kind of misery and leads to more misery. That the only happiness worth that name is the happiness of being conscious. So how far do you have to travel to be conscious? It's so relieving, ultimately, to know that you just have to encourage that kind of wakefulness. And it's your natural state. I asked you earlier today to stop being aware. You saw immediately that it's there. But having that awareness, and it's the qualities of awareness, being able to focus, being able to notice different things, we need practice. Everybody's naturally aware, but we're so untrained that we spend most of our time dreaming. The g- good news is, and what the, what the Buddha spoke about endlessly, he says, if, I, if this wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. That we're trainable. 
We're not just stuck with the minds that we have. We may be stuck with certain genetic mental tendencies, but we are, it's so, we're trainable. So even no matter how much your conditioning is such where you have self-doubt or judgment, all of that, everything that comes into your mind, whatever your habits are, they can be put to good use. They can become objects of loving kindness and objects of meditation. So again, long story short about making, you know, how long you should sit or where you should sit. It is good to have a little dedicated spot that you like to go to. But the truth is, I sit up in my bed the moment I wake up. My mind is fresh. I've, I've dropped the impressions from the previous day. From, you know, I've kind of discharged during the night. Sometimes, as my teacher used to put it, we, you, know, you live a meditative life, you have sleepful waking. But he says that's often followed by wakeful sleeping. So I, a lot of activity at night, but fresh in the morning, even if my body's maybe a little tired. So at that time, much more clarity, just orient myself, notice how I emerge from sleep before I even remember my identity. I'm just aware. And there's, the see, there's seeing and there's hearing, smelling. And then and notice the way my to-do list pops in and then all of a sudden I'm reminded. But all of that can be part of the meditation. So then sit first thing. And then in the evening, always good to sit too, but in the evening it is, you can't, usually there's not a lot of clarity and it's usually emptying the impressions of the day and just letting your mind discharge. So not to try to be too fierce. And in any case, you want to be so friendly and merciful to your conditioning. Conditioning that is made up of, of beginningless causes. Of course, we each individually are responsible for our minds and our bodies. But what comes into our mind is so much ungovernable by, and made up so much of what has... Um, what we've just taken in. So it's, um, so we want to be friendly. We don't want to add to the misery that we tend to, to have in our life. So that leads me just to a, a little bit of a, a sharing of the context of this particular practice. This is called insight meditation and otherwise known as vipassana. Vipassana basically means seeing clearly, seeing things as they are. It's basically seeing into the nature of our experience. Why did the Buddha encourage this particular practice? Mindfulness directed to the body, mindfulness directed to these feeling tones, mindfulness directed to mental states, moods and emotions, mindfulness directed to the understanding the laws of nature. He said because... It is mostly ignorance. It is mostly confusion that leads us to be in a chronic state of wanting what we don't have and not wanting what we do have. And this chronic state of wanting things to be different than the way they are is what turns the basic challenges of being human into mental suffering. So if you're born, definition of birth. If you're an individual... Definition of birth, leading cause of sickness, old age, dying, death, 
not always getting what you want and not always wanting what you get. It's the definition of, definition of birth, leading cause of being separated from, ultimately, from everything you hold near and dear. Having things change. That's a given. Now, what turns that into mental suffering is, is not being in harmony with that. Trying to avoid it. Trying to deny it. Trying to keep our life moving so fast that we don't have to actually open to the fact that we, we, are, we have a shelf life and that we don't always get what we want. So the Buddha's teaching was turn toward this reality that if you're in harmony with change and impermanence, you'll have a great happiness. If you're in disharmony, if you're in contention with the reality of change, you will, your life will feel like rope burn your life will be in a, you'll be in a constant running from the truth of things. And that's what makes our life into misery. That's what creates the pressure that demands that we get somewhere. So his teaching basically said, these are the facts. They're not pessimistic, they're realistic. Open to them. And you want to be able to say, yeah, I'm, I, can, I can open to that. And then to, not only that, but then to move on to the second truth. The cause of suffering is that chronic contention with reality. That craving, clinging, this constant sense of becoming, trying to get somewhere, this kind of craving. And with that he said, just notice that and let it go. Let go. Let go of that tight fist of grasping and notice that Whenever you let go of that tight fist of grasping, which is really any moment that you bring kind attention to your experience, there's a lot of space there. There's a happiness there that doesn't depend on the circumstances that you don't have to wait for. So the rest of the prescription for dealing with this chronic habit of clinging, holding on, becoming, trying to shut things out, is to let things be. And then that leads naturally to the third truth that he talked about. There is, within this very life, a cessation of that habit, of that grasping. There is a sense of freedom. It's natural to each of us. And the suggestion is, realize this. Don't don't miss the opportunity to realize, right in the middle of this very life, a, a sense of openness and freedom. And there is a path. And that path has within it three parts that allows our whole life to be part of this opening. To first, the three parts are the, the part of cultivating in our life actions that allow us to feel safe with ourselves and safe with others. So we practice every day, day in and day out, non-harming. Commitment to wise speech, to wise action, to wise livelihood, not causing harm, so that we're constantly fighting with ourselves and fighting with others. I don't want to elaborate too much because our time is running out. But the second part is of the Noble Eightfold Path is, is, includes wise mindfulness, wise concentration, wise effort. Cultivating, wise effort is basically cultivating wholesome forces in your life keeping good company, cultivating loving-kindness, cultivating mindfulness, uh, cultivate wholesome things that lead to more happiness and abandon things that lead you to suffer. 
So if we're intelligent and we're present, you'll see the things that actually are not so helpful. We're not, it's not rocket science. You can see the things that you do in your life that keep causing you suffering. It means to, to abandon those, th- those causes. If this causes this, if you remove this cause, you don't get the result. So it's simple. What do you do that causes you to suffer? And what of those things that you do can you actually stop doing? So usually what we do that causes us suffering is we, we become addicted to things. Addicted to sense pleasures, to our views and opinions, to, uh, to our ideas about ourselves. How do, you, how do you let that go? We notice. Oh, there's a thinking mind thinking. We renounce the things that are addictions with all the help that we may need. We learn to, we cultivate a kind of simplicity and, and we, we cultivate trust through practicing generosity, through, through um, learning to recognize that we have what we need. We don't have to be going out in search and driving everyone else crazy, being in a little narrow path trying to get what I want and leave in our wake a kind of obliviousness to what, you know, who we're affecting, who we're not noticing, who in our life we're not listening to. So all of that is part of the Noble Eightfold Path of developing this kind of wise presence, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, wise effort. And finally wise thought and wise understanding. We develop, we, in, we actually intend, we cultivate the intention to um, renounce the things that cause us suffering. The intention to incline toward loving kindness rather than ill will. So I usually tell everybody to do stealth loving kindness everywhere you go. When you drive down the road, especially because we're prone to ill will on the, when we get behind the wheel, Under our breath, may you be happy, may you be happy. Notice how it transforms any street or any road that you drive down when you're inclining toward goodwill. So wise thought or wise intention is inclining toward goodwill, inclining toward renunciation, and and inclining toward generosity. Again, that's very simple. And then wise understanding is reflect every day on these four truths that I talked about. And the, the deep, the more basic everyday kind of wise understanding is that your actions, what you think, what you say, and what you do has consequences. That karma is, karma is, just means action and the effects of action. And that we just don't do things in a vacuum. Everything is impacting, not just ourselves, but Everyone, because we, the more you practice, the more you see you don't exist apart from everybody else. We're constantly affected, affecting and being affected by each other. So we, we practice, we dedicate our, um, our words, our thoughts, our actions to be of benefit, to be non-harming, to be wise, be loving. So that's part of wise understanding. We can reflect on that, that our actions matter. And uh, so it's a whole life. It's not just this little thing you do on your cushion. It's, hopefully it's the hub. And uh, I hope you have fun with it. 
Don't turn it into a grim duty. Remember that just part of that quote from Alan Watts, and I'll leave you with this before we do a short loving kindness. He said, we don't make music in order to reach the end of the composition. He says, if that were the purpose of music, the fastest players would be the best. We don't dance in order to arrive at a particular place on the floor as in taking a journey. When we dance, the dance itself is the point. And when we take a journey, the journey itself is the point. Same is true in meditation practice. The point of our practice is always arrived at the present moment. So if you're, if, you, if you're aiming, always aiming for some particular result, you're not really practicing. You're just caught in greed. Caught in greed in the mind, which is a, which is a force of tension. Or you're trying to get away from something, you're practicing aversion in the mind. That's why I asked you in the middle of the sitting. And you can ask yourself, if you took nothing else with you, you can ask yourself two questions while you're living your life. Anywhere, anytime. Am I aware? Or three questions. Am I aware right now? What am I aware of? And what's the attitude of mind I'm bringing to this? And that attitude is, am I trying to make something happen here? That's a cause of tension. That's greed in the mind. One of the so-called three poisons. Am I pushing away or resistant to what I'm experiencing right now? That's aversion in the mind or hatred in the mind. Another poison. Am I... Am I, uh, am I spaced out? That's delusion in the mind. There's other levels of, of delusion, the part of personalizing, but we won't get into that at this point. So just notice that. Am I aware? What am I aware of? And what's my attitude right now? You'll find that if once that attitude is noticed, it's like when you, I was telling somebody, when you notice that, you, that you're not breathing... You're holding your breath. What do you do? Because of your natural intelligence, you take a breath. When you notice that you're in contention with reality, there's something in you that will self-correct, that will naturally relax. So tune in to what's happening, the fact that you're noticing it, and what's your attitude that you're bringing to it. And very portable. So now forget everything I've just said. And let your eyes close softly. And I would just like you to envelop your mind and your body with kind attention, as though your attention is imbued with loving kindness. And I'd like you to gently glide your attention along the contours of your head, your face, the back of your head your neck and shoulders, cascading gently down your arms as though each gentle movement of your attention is like a caress of kindness. Kindness to our arms, kindness to our shoulders, kindness to our neck and head, and kindness along the trunk, our body, our chest, our solar plexus and belly the curve of our spine, the muscles, the skin, the flesh of our back and our belly, kindness to our hips, our pelvic area, sweeping gently along our thighs, our knees, our shins and calves, ankles, 
feet down to the tips of our toes, sensing lovingly the skin and the flesh, the muscles and the bones of our legs, each movement of our attention like a caress of kindness until your whole body is enveloped in this kind attention. And then dropping into the middle of this field of kindness, this field of friendliness and goodwill, words that express the deep wish that we all share. Words such as, may I be happy. The Buddha said you could scan the world and not find anyone more deserving of love and kindness than oneself. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. Letting yourself feel the meaning of these words, happy and peaceful, so that you feel it on the spot, not postpone, not wait for this. May I be happy and peaceful. May I feel safe. May I feel safe with myself, safe with others, safe from inner harm, safe from outer harm. May I be healthy and strong. And may I accept my physical limitations with grace. May my heart be at ease and may I know a sense of well-being. May I accept myself just the way I am. May my heart be touched by loving kindness. Letting this loving kindness Expand a little bit to include those who have been here with you today and supported you, the fellow meditators, the volunteers, the Spirit Rock staff. And then let it expand to include all the characters at Spirit Rock and all the beings at Spirit Rock, the beings, the creatures of the air, of the waters, the land, and all beings in this valley and beyond until your wishing, your well-wishing is boundless. And we reflect that if I, as I want to be happy and peaceful and safe and protected and healthy and strong and well and easeful, may all beings without exception those beings who are being born and those who are dying, those in unhappy circumstances and those in happy circumstances, all those who we ordinarily don't see, all the people who are incarcerated, all the victims in this world, may they be filled with loving kindness and even the perpetrators in this world who out of greed and hatred and ignorance act in ways that cause harm. May all beings be touched by loving kindness. 
May all beings know the happiness that doesn't depend on circumstances. May all beings grow in serenity and equanimity, able to meet the joys and the sorrows of our life with less reactivity. And may our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all, including ourselves. May all beings be touched by the awakened heart and mind. May all beings be free. is cramping. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for your practice. I know it was a lot very quickly, but uh, you've got your whole life, but don't let a single meal, or don't let a single day pass. <laughs> Wait, note, please notice the transition and, and uh, enjoy your drive home. Remember to turn right even though you want to turn left on Sir Francis Drake, and thank you again for your practice. You're going to be back pretty soon. Oh, I will be back in August here for a day long. I'll be here also in September for a day long. I'll be here for a residential retreat at the end of August, the Labor Day retreat, another residential retreat in October. Uh, and I think that, and then maybe some later on. Any of you who ever want to sit with me, Every Tuesday evening, 31 years, Mission, Delo- Mission Dharma. You can also watch and, or listen to all the talks that are offered at Mission Dharma on uh, our missiondharma.org or on Facebook. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.